Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is Kira Ryberg, and we're going to be talking about the mathematical points in astrology known as lots or Arabic parts, uh, such as the part of fortune, the part of spirit, and other parts or lots like that. Uh, hey, Kira, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is your first time on the podcast, um, but you have been an astrologer and I think listener for for a while now, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's a, it's an honor to be here. I've been listening to this for years and years now. <laughs> awesome. All right. So we've got a big topic ahead of us. This is more of a technical topic, but it's one that you've come to really focus on and specialize in. And um, it seems like it's like we've been talking about doing this episode for several months now, and it seems like a, a lot of astrologers are talking about lots um, recently. So it seems like our timing is sort of working out pretty well because it's it's like a topic that's on everyone's minds. Yeah, it definitely feels like it has a bit of buzz right now. So I think it's the perfect time to start talking about some of this stuff and hopefully giving people a lot more information about how to delineate lots in their chart and why they're so important. For sure. So we're going to talk today a little bit about the history, a little bit about the philosophy, a little bit about the calculations, and we're also going to look at some example charts. So why don't we jump into, I wanted to do just a quick overview at the beginning of our topic, and then we'll get more into the details right after that. So first quick overview thing is that lots are mathematical points in a chart that mark the signs of the zodiac with different topics. So there's different lots that you can calculate, and depending on where they fall in a chart, they will mark that entire zodiacal sign with those topics, just in the same way that with the houses, when a house coincides with a sign, it will mark um, that sign with the topics of that house, um, I think is, is the basic premise, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's going to kind of bring in those significations that the lot has to do with, and it's really going to make them intertwine with the house significations in the sign as well. For sure. So the lots actually originally, they originated, uh, it's important to know, as an almost alternative method of assigning significations to the houses, where you had the standard method of uh, calculating the degree of the ascendant and seeing what sign of the zodiac it falls in. And then that sign becomes the first house in the chart, and the sign after that becomes the second house, and the sign after that becomes the third house, and that each of those houses has specific meaning. Um, but then the purpose of the lots is that you could calculate a lot, and depending on what sign it falls in, it may add additional topics to that house. So for example, the lot of fortune was said to sometimes signify um, financial resources or general circumstances surrounding possessions and wealth. And so if that lot falls in, let's say, the fourth house um, in a person's chart, then it's going to double up um, or import additional significations besides just the fourth house relating to parents and the home and living situation. It's going to import some additional sense of um, chance or money or financial wealth into that house. Yeah, exactly. So that's really important to understand that there are alternative methods of assigning signification to the houses. Um, the oldest and most widespread lot is the lot of fortune, which is also known as the part of fortune. Um, and with this lot, it's actually really simple. You just calculate the lot by measuring the distance from the sun to the moon in the chart 
and then you measure the same distance from the ascendant, and that's in a day chart. And whatever um, sign it falls in, that sign will take on the quality of that lot, of the lot of fortune. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you have a night chart, that calculation is going to reverse. So sect has a really big influence on the lots and where they're going to fall in the chart. Right. And we'll get more into calculation. I'll show some diagrams here soon. Um, but because the lots rely on the ascendant, they're very highly sensitive and highly personal points in the chart that move around the chart relatively rapidly, especially compared to other points or other planets like the um, you know, the sun or the moon or Mercury or what have you, they sort of all zoom around the chart at different rates. Yeah. And because they are so personal, they really give you an entirely different lens or view on the chart that you just wouldn't be able to access if you weren't taking into consideration the lots and their significations. So that personalization is really key to understanding the importance of the lots and how they're going to impact the concrete reality that you're interfacing with as a human being. <laughs> exactly. Um, so early on, there may have only been a few lots, like the Lot of Fortune seems to have been the first one, and then eventually they developed the Lot of Spirit, which um, goes together with the Lot of Fortune, um, and then eventually developed other lots until eventually, by the medieval tradition, there were hundreds of lots that were being used um, in different parts of the tradition. There's this funny um, quote from Al Biruni around the I don't know, 11th or 12th century, where he says, kind of like Riley, he says, um, the number of lots proliferate daily. <laughs> and it's sort of this funny quote where he's just like, these things are all over the place and the astrologers are going kind of crazy with them. Um, but originally and early in the tradition, it was just like a handful of, of basic lots. Yeah, I think Valen says that the lot of fortune is the archetypal lot. And then we get spirit that kind of comes after that. And then after you know, a couple centuries pass by, we have a lot of lentils and a lot of beans and a lot for all of these agricultural things. And so, yeah, they really took it to the fullest extent that it could possibly be taken. For sure. Don't knock the the lot of lentils. Like you never know <laughs> when you're going to You never like know a... when you're going to grow some lentils and need that lot, you know? Yeah. Or have like a lentil crisis is the worst, worst case scenario. Um, Definitely. Yeah. We'll get into that later. That'll be a whole part of this talk. Um, so the original use of lots has recently been rediscovered through translations of ancient texts, both um, Greek texts, Latin texts, Arabic texts, and a number of other texts where these points used, used to be used much more frequently and in a much more advanced way, whereas a lot of that knowledge was lost after the 17th century. So this is something that's becoming recently re re revived and rediscovered in a more advanced and sort of complex sense. Yeah, absolutely. So as a result of that, they've once again, in recent decades, become um, a major technique for timing and prediction in astrology. And that's a lot of what we're going to get into today with the technical stuff is that they're actually very useful and surprisingly useful for both natal interpretation as well as for timing the eventuation of when specific events will take place in a person's life. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can use them, whether it's transits or zodiacal releasing or perfections from lots. There's you know, a lot of different ways that you can implement them and really use them for timing and prediction that is just, it's amazing to see them work in practice. For sure. 
All right. So that's all actually all I got it for the quick overview. That's the quick introduction to lots. Um, are there any other like quick things we should say at the very start of this or um, are we good to like expand on things a little bit more now? I think we can start expanding. We've got a lot to get through, no pun intended. Yeah, for sure. Oh, there will be lots of puns in this episode. So I'm just, <laughs> we'll just put that in the, that should be in the quick intro as well. Yeah. Um, it, that it sort of goes with the territory. Uh, anybody, anytime somebody talks about this. Absolutely. All right. So um, should we talk about like philosophy history stuff or should we really get into the calculation first so that people can picture what we're talking about? I think we can give some of the historical and philosophical background first, then maybe jump into the calculations once we start thinking about example charts and stuff like that that we're going to show. Right. I mean, I'm less concerned about the calculation, but more just I didn't show any images or anything at the beginning. So I don't know if it's clearly oh. conveyed what we're talking about. So let me just very quickly do a little excursion on that because I think it's important. And then we'll like start getting into what these things are about. Sounds good. Okay. So um, starting point with that, that's really important. And this is something that I discovered and have been a big proponent of. Um, in modern times, oftentimes the lots are presented as if they are these algebraic formulas where in order to calculate it precisely, it's like you add the position of the moon to the position of the sun, and then you subtract the position from the ascendant or whatever that is so that it sounds usually when new students of astrology or, or astrologers in general see that, um, you know, on paper, some of them, especially if they're not very mathematically inclined, kind of like zone out. And it just seems like a very abstract thing that's not very accessible in terms of understanding what the purpose or motivation of that calculation is, I feel like, right? Yeah, definitely. And luckily we live in the modern day age where you can calculate these things on astroseek or astro.com but otherwise it's kind of hard to understand why these are important if we don't understand the underlying foundations of the calculations yeah well and that's actually a really good point because um you know since the like 1990s since personal computers started becoming available um you know software programmers for astrology software would integrate the calculations into their software. And so then it would just be this point that you didn't even have to know the mathematics behind in order to calculate. Um, but I think despite that making it easier to calculate them, it then removed you even further from understanding where these points were coming from and what the rationale was, um, because then they were even further abstracted to just like these random points in a chart that have names. And like that's otherwise all you know about them. But one of the things that's important is if you go back and you actually read the texts, um, they the way that they describe the calculation for lots is actually one, surprisingly straightforward, and two, it's also, um, it immediately provides some insight into how the lots work and what their underlying like rationale or philosophical motivation actually is. Um, so let me see if I, you have a calculation from like Paulus for fortune, don't you? Here we go. 
He says, um, for Paulus on calculating lots, first is the lot of fortune, which for those born by day, it will be necessary to count from the solar degree to the lunar degree. And one must cast out the collected number from the degree number of the ascendant, giving 30 degrees to each sign. There you go. And where the collected number leaves off, say that at that place is the lot of fortune. For those at night, the reverse, that is from the lunar degree to the solar. And likewise, one must cast out the remainder from the degree of the ascendant. Yeah, so this is really important because this isn't, it's not an abstract algebraic, at least in the way that we conceptualize it, formula. This is presenting the lot calculation for the lot of fortune in a more geometric sense. Um, and this is one of my first big breakthroughs in like 2007, I think, um, relatively early, a couple of years into my studies of Hellenistic astrology, where I realized there was a discrepancy between how a lot of the contemporary, even traditional astrologers were talking a lot about lots and their calculation and presenting them versus like how it's actually described in the text. So, you know, Paulus says very specifically in a day chart, count from the degree of the sun to the degree of the moon, and then measure the same distance from the ascendant. So that's the basic premise of like what we're supposed to do here when it comes to these um these formulas. So let me give an example of that. So I'm going to share my screen for those watching the video version. Here's a little chart from my iPad. And this is like a blank wheel that has cancer rising. So let's let's um Imagine that our ascendant um, is here at like 15 degrees of Cancer. So 15 degrees of Cancer is the ascendant. And let's assume that um, the sun is here at 15 degrees of Taurus, so right in the middle of that sign. And then let's assume that the moon is right in the middle of Leo at let's say 15 degrees of leo that's a very beautifully drawn moon. gorgeous thank you thank you i've practiced that a long time <laughs> 20 20 years now um all right so if we follow what paulus said remember he says if you have a day chart so we know this is a day chart because the sun is up in the top half of the chart it's above the horizon so we know it's a day chart lost my moon um, so he says, if you have a day chart, then start from the degree of the sun and then measure the distance to the degree of the moon. So when we do that and we count the number of degrees between this from the sun to the moon, um, because the sun is at 15 Taurus and the moon is at 15 Leo, that means there's 90 degrees between the two of them. So we write down our like, 90 degrees. And then what Paulus says to do next, after you've measured that distance, which is 90 degrees, is he says, then um, measure out the same number of degrees from the ascendant. So then you start at the ascendant and you measure out 90 degrees from the degree of the ascendant. And eventually that's going to bring you to 15 degrees of Libra in this chart. And that's where the lot of fortune will be in this chart. So yeah. 
that's it. Like that's how you calculate lots basically. Exactly. And for those that can't tell from Chris's beautiful drawing, that's normally a circle with a X in between for the glyph of the lot of fortune. That's a little unclear. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty mangled drawing. It's harder to draw on an iPad than it seems like it should be. But yeah. So um, that's really important. That's how you calculate lots. That's how you calculate every lot because a lot pretty much always like 90 Five, 98% of the time is just counting from one planet to another planet and then measuring the same distance from the degree of the ascendant. Yep. So um I do this and I sort of like belabor that I always belabor this point because um I think each person should what I originally did is I had like a dry erase board because this was like 2007. And I did, I put out some blank charts and then I just started using that to draw out lot calculations in different charts in order to get a sense for how it worked. Um, and I think each person should do this with like a piece of paper or whatever you're most com comfortable drawing with and do it in your chart because as soon as you do, like you'll see how the lots move and how they work. And you'll have such a better access point for understanding what these things are all about that you'll be surprised that you didn't try this sooner, basically. Yeah, it takes it from being this abstract concept and makes it really personal. And you can understand how all of the key points in a chart, the luminaries and your ascendant are so critical to calculating both the lot of fortune, the lot of spirit, and then all of the other hermetic lots, which are based on those two primary lots. Right, exactly. Um, so there are some like little tricks here where um, it's kind of tricky because you like in the Hellenistic text, there's two ways to calculate lots. Like um, the way that I, the way that the text describe things is that you're always supposed to count um, in zodiacal order, which is counterclockwise. So it's like whatever your whatever your point A is, you're always supposed to start there. Like at the sun, for example, if the calculation starts at the sun, you're supposed to start there and then count to point B, whatever your second planet is, in zodiacal order or in the order of the signs. And then you're always supposed to start at the ascendant and you're supposed to... Um, count also in zodiacal order from the ascendant so it's like you're always moving in the same direction and there may be even something about that in terms of the conceptualization of projecting the lot downward from the degree of the ascendant because as soon as you project it downwards um, it's going under the earth into the sphere um, of the earth and like physical incarnation, which is the bottom half of the chart, whereas the top half of the chart is the sky. Um, and it was seen as more connected with the spirit or with the soul, whereas the bottom half of the chart is more connected with the body and matter. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So um, my point with this is just that in the text, you're always supposed to count that way. Sometimes that'll make it so that you're counting the long way all the way around the chart. And so, for example, if the moon was, if the sun was still in Taurus, 
and the moon was instead in Aquarius, then if you're calculating the lot of fortune, you would still start from the sun and you would have to count all the way around the chart to the moon in Aquarius, which would be 10 signs. And then you would have to start from the ascendant and count all the way around the chart, 10 signs, until eventually you come to Aries in this case, which is the 10th sign from our ascendant or rising sign, which is Cancer. And then that's where the lot of fortune is in the chart. So that's the way the texts are described, describe the calculations, and that's one way to calculate things. There's another easier way, though, that I prefer, which works the same mathematically, but it's sim more simple to calculate um, visually, which is that what you do is you start with your point A, whatever your first planet is, but then you measure the shortest distance to point B. So in this case, we're still starting from the sun to calculate the lot of fortune at 15 degrees of Taurus, but then we're going to measure, since the moon is in Aquarius, the shortest distance to the moon is to go um, in reverse zodiacal order, which is clockwise. So we'll measure the distance to the moon, and we'll find that it's 90 degrees. So then what you do when you measure the shortest distance is you then still measure that out from the degree of the ascendant, but then when you measure out from the degree of the ascendant, you go in the same direction as you had to go um, when calculating the shortest distance between planet A and planet B. So in this instance, because we had to go um, count because we had to go clockwise from the sun to the moon to get to the shortest distance, we also do that from the ascendant here, going upwards, 90 degrees, and that brings us to Aries. So we end up at the same point. We still end up at 15 degrees of Aries, um, but you see we've just gotten there a little bit differently. Yeah, a little bit quicker in that respect. Yeah, it's quicker and it's easier to visualize so that it's easy to like glance at a chart and like know how to calculate this pretty pretty simply, I think, this way, right? Yeah, definitely. I think you teach it this way in your course as well, which made it really quick for me when I was taking that a couple years back. Yeah, this is how I teach it just because that's so much more easily accessible um, in terms of that. And then one of the things that you see is that um, one of the short ways of knowing where the lot of fortune is in the chart, once you realize that it's just a matter of measuring distances, is you know that whatever aspect there is between the sun and the moon in your chart, um, the lot of fortune will always have the same aspect with the ascendant. So for example, if your sun and moon are square, um, which they are here since they're 90 degrees apart from 15 degrees of Taurus to 15 degrees of Aquarius, that means the lot of fortune itself um, will also be a square to the ascendant, which is 90 degrees. So one of the key access points for understanding the lot of fortune is that it just replicates the aspect that exists in the birth chart between the sun and the moon, and it replicates that aspect with the degree of the ascendant. Yep, exactly.
so what other short, are there any other short things related to that that are worth mentioning? No, I think that's pretty comprehensive. Okay. okay. So yeah. So um, if your sun and moon are trying, a lot of fortune will be trying the ascendant. If sun and moon are opposite, fortune will be opposite the ascendant and so on and so forth. So um, that's our initial access point for understanding the calculation and like what we're talking about in this episode. So I just wanted to like make that clear because it's one of the most important things if you're first learning this topic is to sit down with a piece of paper, do that yourself, and then your understanding and your foundation will immediately be like light years ahead of many other astrologers that have never done that before and don't truly understand how to calculate lots. Yeah, definitely. And the one thing that did come to mind is if like you have a new moon in your chart, for example, then the lot of fortune is probably always going to fall in the first house, unless you have a really late ascendant degree. And if you're born on a full moon, then it's going to fall in the seventh house as well. So kind of just bringing in that nature of the conjunction and the opposition as well, and where fortune is going to fall, respect to that. Exactly. And if you have a like a quarter moon, like a first quarter, a third quarter moon, which is when the sun and moon are square, then the lot of fortune is always going to fall in like the 10th whole sign house or the fourth whole sign house. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. So that's the concept of lots from a technical or calculation standpoint. Um, shall we back up now and talk a little bit about the, the premise and the philosophical and historical stuff? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So um, in order to understand this, there's a few different points that are important in terms of the history and philosophy. So one of them is what is a lot? And the original concept underlying that is tied in with, with a few different things, I think, right? Yeah, a couple different things like claromancy and oracles and the nature of like a lottery or divination and casting lots, especially um, back in you know ancient times as a method of determining the will of the gods and almost like what your allotment is. And we can see how that even translates over into some of the common language that we use today when we talk about, oh, that's my lot in life, for example. Right. So the, the original Greek term for lot is kleros, and it's derived from or it's the concept underlying it is um, first the notion of um, you know casting dice or casting something that um, gives you a random outcome in order to decide the outcome of something. So just like we still like cast lots today or how we have a lottery where um, you know people, you know, you know pick something, you pick like a number, for example, and then there's like, um, balls that like bounce around and then one of them falls out and then that determines the winner of it basically through the process of chance or fortune or randomness um, which for us is not seen as as meaningful in any way because chance is always like 50 50 so it's seen as random but in the ancient world sometimes Although they did have that random component or or some conceptualization of that, um, because of some of the background religious and spiritual worldview, sometimes the use of lots was used and was viewed as not random, but instead was viewed as um, sometimes something you could use in order to determine an outcome for something through divine guidance under the principle that 
everything happens for a reason and that nothing happens in the universe without some sort of um, underlying motivation or being pushed in a direction by some sort of divine agency. So sometimes lots, instead of just being used to determine things randomly, were used to determine an outcome um, as a method of divination and trying to figure out um, sort of what the gods are indicating about the future. Yeah, exactly. I think it was very common to do when people were apportioning shares of something out like a inheritance or something, and it would be you know, a, a situation where they would cast lots on that and then they would determine those shares and say it was, you know, the God's will that declared it to be so. And that's how they were able to get to the notion that this is what's meant to be. Yeah. Like it was definitely used in that way to apportion things that there's an element like with land and we mm -hmm. still have some of that language in our um, language of dividing up land where you have like a lot of land which means like um, an, an apportionment of something, like taking a, a portion of something or dividing something up into portions. And, and that actually becomes a really interesting conceptual motivation for um, you know, the, the concept of lots as well, because um, lot language is actually all over Hellenistic astrology. And when they talk about like how the planets came to be assigned to the signs of the zodiac and different things like that, they'll often use language saying that um, Venus was allotted to the sign of Libra as a result of this rationale. So they'll talk about how the planets came to own or have their different plots of land in the signs of the zodiac based on the allotment um, that was apportioned to that planet. Yeah, exactly. So that's definitely one motivation is using it in that sense of like one's due or one's apportionment um, in life also, which then became tied in with concepts of like fate and um, what you receive as your due or what you receive as a result of your fate. Um, but then there was this other component of using lots um, in the purpose of divination, both to tell the future or in order to have the gods decide something that was important. Um, so there's like this famous passage, even in the Bible, where um, it's like the apostles, like I think, you know, Judas has betrayed Jesus and now they need to get a new apostle and they have a choice between two options. So there's this passage in the Bible where the, the 11 apostles pray and they ask God for like divine guidance, and then they cast lots, and the lot falls to one guy rather than the other, and they take that as a divinely inspired choice about what direction they should go, and so they choose that person as a result of the lot falling to him. So that's really important core conceptual motivation as well, is the notion that um, through seemingly random events of chance, that even though things sometimes seem random, that there's some sort of like guiding force of fate underlying things that will push events in one direction or another. And we still have that notion when it comes to chance, sometimes that's kind of latent in our psyche, where sometimes we talk about random or chance-like events. And sometimes that can be like bad things, um, but other times it can be good things. Like 
um, a few weeks ago, I remember there was that um, airplane window that blew out yeah. um, in mid-flight. But on social media, at least, I didn't look into this a lot, but there was a lot of people talking about how there were supposed to be two people seated there in that row next to the window that blew out in mid-flight. But then for some reason, through a random chance like sequence of events they ended up missing their flight and so they weren't there and therefore didn't get like sucked out of the window in the middle of an airplane flight just due to these sort of seemingly chance circumstances but ones that ended up conspiring to somehow in that instance seemingly perhaps save their life yeah that story was such a great you know elucidation of that kind of concept that sometimes bad things happen and those people were probably maybe really upset about missing their flight but then sometimes fate is having its way you know and we don't know what we're maybe not engaging with when we do miss that flight or something like that happens yeah exactly and it's like all of us have events like that on greater or level or or lower scales of like you know you missed the bus one day but then as a result of that, you ran into somebody and you started a relationship and that turned into like a major relationship or a friendship of some sort um, or other things where sometimes something that seems bad but ends up having a good outcome later on so that it was necessary to have the bad chance like event that then set you up for the other success later or sometimes vice versa, like a seemingly good event, but then it turns out that that chance-like event led to a negative outcome later that you couldn't have perceived um, when the first event happened. Yeah, exactly. Fate works in mysterious ways, and sometimes it's not until you're many years down the line that you can look back and see the thread that kind of interwove between those different events and how if you wouldn't have done that one thing that one day, it wouldn't have led you to do X, Y, and Z the next. And that's kind of how our entire lives are, you know, formed up when we get to the end of things. Right, for sure. So philosophically, in the ancient world, part of this was that the Stoics, uh, the Stoic philosophers conceptualized fortune as like a goddess and, and a force in nature that was ultimately subservient to fate, where it's like fate is this overriding concept which is like the sequence of events as well as the divine plan and sort of like purpose in everybody's life. Um, but then below fate is you have fortune, which is sometimes creating these seemingly random chance-like events and things like that that seem chaotic, um, but that in fact are still operating within this broader overarching plan or purpose of fate. Yeah, exactly. And then somewhere, you know, beneath that we get agency or free will. And so there's kind of ways that all of these three things kind of combine together to create the circumstances that we engage with on an everyday basis where we're born into certain material circumstances that might feel more like fate or fortune. And then, you know, we respond and we have our agency and we do what we can with those, but we're still going to be confined by the family that we're born into, the circumstances we're born into, and different things that relate to that. Yeah, that's a really great point. And so, because what we'll end up seeing is that the astrologers themselves, they tried to make room for both of those things, which is fortune and the things that befall you that are outside of your control, like fortune and chance. But then this other concept of um, what they ended up calling spirit, 
which is acts of pers personal volition or free will when you're actually making choices and decisions in your life and what the um, interaction is or sometimes the intersection is between your luck or your fortune or chance-like events versus your free will and your actions and your choices. Yeah, exactly. I often say the uh, lot of fortune is the hand you're dealt and the lot of spirit shows you how you play your cards. Mm, that's good. I like that. All right. So all that's really important. Um, one of the backdrops philosophically also of why this is important is um, there was this very famous philosophical dialogue um, by the philosopher, the Greek philosopher Plato, who was writing um, probably two or three centuries before the concept of lots was developed, um, at least maybe a century or two. And he wrote this famous dialogue, um, which is called the, the Republic. And within it, towards the end of it, there's this famous um, sort of like myth that he tells called the myth of Ur. And in this, it has um, some really important or at least influential like philosophical backdrop that involves the concept of lots, as well as the concepts of like fate and the planets and chance and all these other concepts that get wound together in this sort of like um, broad philosophical or like spiritual sort of narrative. Yeah, absolutely. It really kind of elucidates the lot of fortune and the lot of spirit when you're thinking about those whilst reading the myth of Ur, because they say you kind of have your lot, right, that's given to you in a much more fortune kind of circumstance, and then you choose your daimon, which is another word for spirit. So you have both components being really pronounced in that myth. Yeah. So here's a, I wrote like a little summary of like the myth of Ur just to give people an idea of it without like reading the entire thing. Um, so it says um, Ur, who is a warrior, dies in battle, but then miraculously revives 12 days later. In the afterlife, he recounts his vision of the underworld consisting of two paths, one for the just and one for the unjust. Souls dwell in each realm for a thousand years before choosing their next life through reincarnation. Before choosing, the souls gather at the loom of fate, where the three fates spin destinies and the goddess Lachesis assigns lives based on merit from the previous life. Ur see, sees great heroes and tyrants choosing lives suited to their soul's condition. Um, initially drawn to a powerful tyrant's life, Ur remembers Socrates' teachings and chooses a simpler philosopher's life. He then wakes up on a funeral pyre, uh, forever marked by his experience. So um, one of the things that's important is basically in the myth, it has like all of the souls that are about to reincarnate are like on the outskirts of the universe and they are given um, lots and they have to pick a lot basically. So there's this random chance-like thing that happens where they have to cast lots in order to determine who gets to choose first and have a greater choice of lives versus who has to choose 
last, basically. Yeah, exactly. They cast the lots out and you kind of get a number that you go and order that and then choose your life. But I think there is a line in there that says there's enough good lives for everyone to have something that's meaningful and, you know, to have, there's quite a lot of choice basically, but there's still those constrictions being placed on, you know, what you're able to choose if you were last or if you're first based on the casting of the lots. Exactly. So it's like this, because once you choose your lot, which is the the chance like element, then you choose your life. And so um, at least in the terms of the dialogue, it's trying to make um, some room for both fate and free will in a sense, in that there's this element that's outside of your control, which is like the chance, but then once you are dealt that lot, then you choose what life you want to live. So what's interesting about this is then once um, once a person um, casts their lot and then chooses a life, each um, soul is then assigned a guardian spirit, which is then assigned to the person and then is supposed to follow them into incarnation in order to help ratify and help ensure that they follow the plan in terms of what life they chose. And so they're assigned what's called a guardian spirit, or in Greek, it's called a daimon. And that daimon or that spirit then accompanies the person throughout their life and um, pushes them in certain directions based on the choice that they were made, that they made in terms of what life they were supposed to live. Yeah. And I think that there's something in there too that says that it's the person's responsibility to either choose their life or choose their diamond. I can't remember which, and that God will not be held responsible. So they almost put the responsibility for what happens on the individual, which I always found really interesting in that respect. It's almost saying like abdicating responsibility for the things that go wrong um, and placing that on the person themselves. Right. Um, let me read part of that just because it'll convey convey it more clearly. Sure. So um, this is from the Robin Waterfield translation of The Republic, which I really like. I really like all of Robin Waterfield's translations, both for this um, as well as he recently did a new translation of Marcus Aurelius that's really good that also talks about the diamond that I'll, I'll read in a little bit as well. So um, from this translation, it says, as soon as the souls arrived, they had to approach Lachesis. An intermediary arranged them in rows, and then once he'd taken from Lachesis's lap lottery tokens and sample lives, stepped up to a high rostrum and said, Hear the words of Lady Lachesis, daughter of necessity. Um, you souls condemned to impermanence, the cycle of birth followed by death is beginning again for you. No deity, no diamond will be assigned to you. You will pick your own diamond or guardian spirit. The order of gaining tokens decides the order of choosing lives. So the order of gaining lots um, decides the order of choosing lives, which will be irrevocably yours. Goodness makes its own rules. Each of you will be good to the extent that you value it. Responsibility lies with the chooser, not with God. 
Um, after this announcement, he threw the lots into the crowd and everybody picked up the lot that fell beside him. Each soul's position in the lottery was clear once he picked up his lot. Um, next, the intermediary placed on the grounds in front of them a sample of lives. When the souls had finished choosing their lives, they approached Lachesis in the order of the lottery that had been assigned to them. She gave each of them their personal guardian spirit or daimon that they'd selected to accompany them throughout their lives as their guardians and to fulfill the choices that they had made. Um, each deity first led its soul, each daimon first led its soul to Clotho, one of the fates, to pass under her hand and under the revolving orbit of the spindle of the planets, and so as to ratify the destiny the soul had chosen in the lottery. Um, then once the connection had been made with her, the deity led the soul to Atropos, one of the other fates, and her spinning to make the web woven by Clotho fixed and unalterable. So, um, and then eventually the souls then go and rush into incarnation and into birth and enter into their next lives. So one of the reasons why this is important here is because we've got in this myth the, the notion of lots and being assigned your lot and, and choosing and that notion of chance, which is fortune, and it's directly connected to the notion of fortune that we find in the lot of fortune later once that was developed in Hellenistic astrology. But here we also first encounter another concept that comes up with the lots as well, which is the concept of the daimon or the spirit or guardian spirit, um, because the mere lot for the lot of fortune um, the second, if the lot of fortune was the first and most important lot that was developed, the second and most second most important lot that was developed was called the lot of spirit or the lot of daimon. Um, so this notion of daimon is actually very integral to and is tied in with um, the concept of lots as well. Yeah, exactly. And we kind of see it either, even mirroring what we see in the astrological sense of you get to choose your daimon, right? And spirit has a lot more to do with your agency, your free will, the things that come from your own volition, whereas the lot of fortune is directly related to the things that you cannot control. You cannot control the order that you go to pick your life. So there is some choice there, but you're still constrained by circumstance. So we see that kind of mimicking and mirroring what we see with a lot of fortune and a lot of spirit, which is why this myth is just so kind of beautiful for highlighting how that shows up in the astrological world. Yeah, for sure, because it's um, it's trying to find the intersection between fate and free will, essentially. Although, you know, one of the interesting implications and the things that that's been subsequently debated about this debate is then Plato tries to then make room for fate and free will by saying that the choice of the life was made like prior to incarnation. So one of the things that's interesting there, if you follow that implication to its fullest extent, is the notion that the life itself, once incarnated, is predetermined, which in, in some ways, you know, from an astrological standpoint, to the extent that the birth chart that you cast from the moment of birth is supposed to indicate your future and indicates all these different things about the life right from the very start of it um, implies almost in some sense that that's true, um, that the life is somehow potentially predetermined, at least in its broad outlines, the very least, 
from the moment of birth, um, Plato makes room for free will by saying that there was some sort of um, choice that was made prior to birth um, about the life. And that's how he sort of reconciles those two things. Yeah. And then promptly says, and you forget everything when you incarnate. So you're not going to remember any of this when you're alive. Right. The souls after they choose and after they've gone to the fates to to ratify and to lock in their decision, they then travel um, for another few days. And then they eventually end up on like the, they have to drink from the river of forgetfulness. And some of the souls drink more and some of the souls drink less. Um, but all of them then, as a result of that, like forget the choice that they made um, when they're born. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, so this is important because we've got here our, our basic notions of choice or our basic notions of fortune then um, as partially an allotment. It's like what you've been allotted and what you've received um through the distribution and then you have um daimon or spirit which um in some sense is being associated with uh choice and we'll see in the astrological text that spirit and a lot of spirit gets associated not with choice and actions but also with the intellect and with the soul of the native um and that's really important as well and something to to think about and expand on yeah, the lot of fortune has connections with the moon primarily, and then the lot of spirit has connections with the sun. So, you know, the moon being more like your body and your material circumstances, and then the sun being that of the intellect and the mind and the spirit. So that kind of carries that notion over into the lot of fortune and the lot of spirit as well. Yeah. And I actually have a quote about that here, since we're getting into that now. So this is from the second century astrologer Vedius Valens when he's talking about the meaning of the lot of fortune and the lot of spirit. This is from um, Robert Schmidt's translation. He says, whence the lot of fortune and the lot of spirit will have much power over the imposing and turning back of actions. For the one, the lot of fortune, shows matters concerning the body and handicrafts or work with the hands. But the lot of spirit and its ruler or domicile master shows matters concerning the soul and the intellect and actions through discourse and through giving and receiving. So that's really important, like basic distinction there, where the lot of fortune is being associated with the body and the lot of spirit is being associated with the mind or the intellect. Yeah, exactly. And that goes even further when we're bringing in, you know, techniques like zodiacal releasing and, you know, when you can track like certain time periods. So when you're going to have ebb and flows with health, when you look at a lot of fortune and then ebb and flows of, you know, intellect or being able to take actions. And I think at one point Valens even says that a lot of spirit and zodiacal releasing from that point can um, indicate periods of mental distress or mental clarity. Yeah. So the, the mental state of the native which can, you know, sometimes be good or sometimes be be bad. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So um this is important, this concept of the diamond, because it's um directly tied in with diamond being the word that's used for the lot of spirit. And understanding what that means is important 
um, conceptually because there's different conceptualizations of what the daimon is and like how it works or what it does. And some of that already, you can already see that there's like different interpretations or different interpretations that you can take of what the daimon is, even just from Plato and from how that's being described in the myth of Ur. So different possible interpretations and different conclusions that people draw from that. Um, some interpret the, the daimon as being an internal compass or a sort of intuition representing the innate tendencies and potential within each soul that influence their life choices. Um, others view it as an external guiding spirit, like a guardian angel or a spirit guide that helps navigate choices and opportunities throughout life. Um, additionally, a third conceptualization that's related is that the daimon could also be seen as a symbolic representation of the fixed aspects of a chosen destiny and the unchangeable parameters with which the individual exercises free will or within which the individual exercises free will. So this is really important because in the ancient texts, um, outside of astrology, sometimes you have this notion of the daimon as this like external guardian spirit that's somehow influencing you. And what's interesting about that is there was a lot of broader discussions in like philosophy and religion about the concept of daimons being these intermediary spirits um, that have the ability to go back and forth between the celestial realm and the realm of the gods um, and the realm of immortality versus the um, terrestrial world or the sublunary world of physical incarnation where we're, we're living here as mortals, and that these guardians, these diamonds or these spirits are these intermediaries between those two worlds that sort of travel back and forth. So... Um, they get discussed sometimes as like these external things then that are capable of acting or of doing things um, in the external world in, in some texts, whereas there's other texts where the daimon and especially the person's personal daimon that's assigned to them gets associated more with like this internal process of it being like the commanding center or the intellect of the native in some sense, so that instead of something that's purely external, it becomes something that's more internalized and is more personal to them. Yeah, exactly. And I think in a lot of magical traditions, you're also able to like propitiate your daimon to do your bidding, so to speak, or to make things happen in your reality. So you can have a relationship with your daimon if you're viewing it as an external spirit outside of yourself rather than just that internal compass. But people have obviously very different beliefs and where they land on that. Yeah. And I think even within the astrological community and ancient astrology, there was a range of beliefs because we see on the one hand, the astrologer and philosopher Porphyry at one point has this dialogue with another philosopher named Iamblichus, where they're talking about um, Porphyry talks about the potential of um, calculating the master of the nativity or the overall ruler of the chart, and that some astrologers, he says, used that in order to identify the guardian spirit. Um, and then 
the idea supposedly was that you could somehow then invoke or propitiate the guardian spirit and make a request for it to change your fate in some ways um, because the guardian spirit was also the thing that was supposed to be essentially here watching to make sure that you did follow your fate and that you were supposed to follow that path. And so then there was this debate between Porphyry and Iamblichus about whether that made any sense because if the guardian spirit is here and it's supposed to be the thing that's making you follow your fate, then how are you supposed to be able to invoke it in order to change your fate? And and is that really possible was like a famous debate that they had over that topic. Yeah. And that's where that intermediary concept of the daimon comes in, right? Like they might be able to go and negotiate with the fates or the moirai or Zeus or whoever to see if that fate was able to be changed and whether that does, you know, happen and then your circumstances and your material reality change. And that's where that magical kind of perspective comes in quite a bit with the notion that you can't change your fate, you can change your circumstances by engaging in ritual or propitiating your daimon or things of that nature. Right. So that was definitely one major part of the tradition, both in philosophy and culture and and in astrology, even that, that Porphyry and the Oblicus talk about that some astrologers were engaged in. Um, there was this other part, though, that I've seen that I think is more connected with the Stoic school, which especially earlier in the Hellenistic tradition, I think tended to influence the astrologers more strongly. And we can see astrologers like especially Vadius Valens or Manilius or some of the others being um, much more inclined towards Stoicism and inclined especially towards viewing astrology itself as the study of fate and viewing things as being predetermined um, to a much greater extent or to a large extent. So in some of those people like Valens, um, but also in other Stoic inclined contemporaries, like one of the most prominent is Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor in the middle of the second century, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, but he was also a Stoic philosopher who wrote a book that's usually referred to as the Meditations. Um, in Marcus Aurelius, he very frequently talks about the daimon and refers to it, but he refers to it more as this like um, this piece or this shard of the world soul because they believed that the entire cosmos itself was alive and it was a living sentient being that had a body that is like the physical world that we can see, but then also had a soul which is infused throughout it and connects everything with um, intelligence and meaning and, and purpose. Um, and they believed that um, our individual soul and diamond was like a shard of that world soul that was within us, um, even while we were physically incarnated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, I have a quote from that. So Marcus Aurelius, this is from the new Robin Waterfield translation, which I love both for his translation, but also for the commentary. And I recommend everybody get, um, especially those that are interested in Hellenistic astrology, because I think Marcus's philosophy is probably some of the closest to Valens that you're going to find and can help you to understand a lot of the philosophical and more stoic philosophical sentiments that Valens expresses in his astrological text. 
Um, so one of the quotes from Marcus Aurelius is it says, the man who lives with the gods is the one whose soul is constantly on display to them as content with its lot and obedient to the will of the guardian spirit, the fragment of himself that Zeus or God has granted every person to act as his custodian and command center. And in each of us, this is the mind and reason. So it's interesting because he's talking about the guardian spirit being assigned to us by lot, essentially by the universe or God or the cosmos, but also saying that um, the guardian spirit in us is representing mind and reason and is our like commanding center. It's the thing that's like animating and moving our body um, in the same way that we have the conceptualization of like our mind um, actualizing the choices that we make um, through our body, essentially. Yeah. And I think in Valens's description of the lot of spirit, he defines it as something that stirs your soul into action. And so we would think about that as being the mind and the intellect and the reasoning capacity that we have to make decisions that enable us to go out into the world and do things, right? So I think we see that really strong parallel between Marcus Aurelius and Valens's description of the lot of spirit coming through there. Exactly. And I think that's really important because in Marcus and then also in Valens as a result of that, I think there is a conceptualization of the guardian spirit or the daimon as being more of this internalized thing that's sort of part of you, um, even if there's a recognition of it being assigned or coming from elsewhere. Um, but it's much more personalized to you rather than just being this like external unknowable spirit or something like that. And I think that gets us much closer in most cases to the actual underlying conceptualization, especially of the lot of spirit, which is consistently in the astrological tradition treated as having to do with the mind and the intellect and the choices or acts of personal volition of the native. Yeah, it's a very personal point in the chart where it almost highlights an element of your personality, of your decision making, about how you approach life more generally speaking, that sometimes you don't find in other parts of the chart. Someone could maybe be incredibly Venusian and have, you know, a Libra ascendant and Venus ruling that in Taurus. And then all of a sudden their lot of spirit is in Aries and they have a very martial disposition to them and a way of going about making decisions and acting in the world that we maybe wouldn't associate with someone who is so typically Venusian. And that's why the lots can provide almost like this, you know, lens on the person and who they are internally as well. And a lot of spirits specifically can highlight that, I think, in a really powerful and validating way for some people. For sure. Definitely. Um, okay. I think we have explained that pretty well. And this is actually Although moving slowly, some people might want us to move faster. I think it's actually <laughs> building on itself quite well um, because now I think it might be good to go into, we could actually introduce the calculation for a lot of spirit, but then also get to the underlying um, conceptual motivation for what the why the calculations are the way they are that I discovered back in 2007. And this might be the good like transition point to get into that. Yeah, sounds perfect.
If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. All right, so let's transition to talking about the meanings of fortune and spirit a little bit more and the rationale underlying the calculations. So here's a quote um, from Dorian Greenbaum's translation of Paulus Alexandrinus, where he's talking about the meaning of fortune and the meaning of the lot of fortune and the meaning of the lot of spirit. So he says, fortune signifies all things about the body and action throughout life. It becomes indicative of acquisition, reputation, and privilege. Um, then he says, the lot of spirit happens to be lord of soul, temper, sense, and every capability or faculty, and there are times when it cooperates in the reckoning about what one does. Um, what one does, meaning one's like occupation or career. Yeah. So this is really important, and this is our basic distinction then that comes up over and over again in the Hellenistic texts about the difference between fortune and spirit, that fortune is like things that have to do with the body, things that happen to do with the hands that you do with the physical body, um, but also things like acquisition of material goods and material wealth, um, privilege, uh, which is something that you sort of like receive not as a result of um, choice, but as a result of like circumstance, like you're privileged, you have a privilege in some area of, of your life. Um, what's an example of privilege? Like being born into wealth, for example, might be an example of privilege. Yeah. I'm thinking of Nepo babies, you know, you're born into right. quite a bit of privilege in those circumstances. Exactly. Um that's that's funny. We'll we'll see some actual examples of that of people with like the fourth house that were born into like a wealthy family with a lot of fortune in the fourth house. Yeah, exactly. I think in one of our examples we have Marie Antoinette and she has um the ruler of her lot of fortune in the fourth house. And so you can see how she was born into a royal family as well. So there's certain ways that the lot of fortune is also just gonna tell you a lot about what circumstances the native is born into through no capacity of their own, through things that were not their choice. Right, for sure. Or areas sometimes even later in life that they'll be successful, they'll have fortunate circumstances in. And that's something that's really important to think about. Um, because one of the great, one of the good things about 20th century astrology and the rise of like humanistic and psychological astrology is it put a lot of focus on free will and choice and not giving into an overly fatalistic attitude um, of things, which I think was good. Um, but one of the things, one of the shortcomings of like 20th century humanistic astrology is it doesn't often know how to deal with and it doesn't have a good grasp on dealing with things that are outside of a person's control. Um, of which, you know, there are many things in this world in our experience of human life that are outside of our control, that are like circumstances and stuff that just happens that you don't have control over and that is outside of the realm of your choice, no matter how much you you might want it to be otherwise. Um, and that's part of where fortune is coming into play here. 
Yeah. And I think that can be really validating for some people too, when there's an element of fate, it doesn't all rest on your shoulders. Not everything is a product of how much effort that you've put into something. Like sometimes stuff just sucks, you know, sometimes bad things just happen and that's not your fault. That's just a product of fate and circumstance. Yeah. And that has always been, especially I was much more um, adamant about this in the mid 2000s when stuff like the secret and like positive like law of attraction manifestation stuff was much more in vogue and there was almost this belief that you could you could manifest or you could do anything in your life and that if you don't or if you had bad circumstances happen there was almost this implication that it was like your fault for like not willing something good to happen instead um and i think while there's some good things about that idea um, that are important so as to not give into a sort of fatalism, there's also some really bad things because it's really um, both psychologically as well as like metaphysically, I think, wrong to tell people that, you know, um, some of the worst circumstances in their life are things that could have been different if only they had thought differently or thought better. And I don't think that's necessarily true. There truly are a lot of things that are outside of our control that have to do with our circumstances and chance or fortune. Yeah, absolutely. It's like telling someone who has like a chronic illness that they just didn't, you know, wish hard enough to not be sick. It's cruel, you know, and it's not real or true either. And so I think you can go too far on either end of the spectrum where you become too fatalistic. And then it's like, well, I just won't do anything. I won't get off the couch and I won't try to make life happen. And then there's the other end where it's like, I have ultimate control over everything. And I think, you know, maybe the healthiest thing is to find a nice in-between of those where certain things fall out of your, you know, control and that's okay. And certain things you can make happen. And that's where we greet life's opportunities and try to make stuff happen to the degree that we can. Right. Exactly. Um, so, and that is where fortune and spirit come in. So exactly. fortune, as we were talking about body, things that happen, um, spirit, on the other hand, is the other end of the spectrum where the when the astrologers talk about spirit, they tend to be talking about like the soul, the intellect, and the sense of choice, action, or personal volition um, that the native has and the actual choices that they make and the things that they bring into their life as a result of actualizing their internal, either intellectual mind or um, another perspective sometimes can be like actualizations of the soul itself um, that are then coming about and being manifested in the world. Yeah. I often think of a lot of a spirit as almost like what you're incarnated to do, what you feel compelled towards or drawn to on some greater scale, which is where that idea of maybe like a guiding you know, daimon or spirit is really helpful because sometimes you just feel like you have to do something, like you were born to create or born to, you know, have a family or whatever it might be. And there's that almost like compulsion there, your inner compass, so to speak, is directed in that direction. And so the lot of spirit is really going to speak to that purpose, that underlying motivation for why do you get up off the couch? You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And and just what is the intersection between the circumstances that are outside of your control, which are fortune versus the circumstances that are actually within your control, which is spirit. And the intersection between those two things, that's something that 
is probably the most important thing, I guess, if I was to think about it, that the lots, especially a lot of spirit and a lot of fortune do, um, especially in their applications, not just in looking at their natal placement, but also through timing techniques like zodiac releasing, is the ability to see um, the intersection between those two and to identify and sometimes be able to separate the things that have to do with chance and fortune and external circumstances versus the things that have to do with choice and personal volition and what the native um, is actively trying to bring out or bring about in their life through their own striving and through their own efforts. Yeah, I'm eternally wishing for a software to show both at the same time so you can see the ways that they're kind of playing together and how certain thing, things might be happening from the lot of fortune and then you get to see how you respond from the lot of spirit without having to click back and forth from a couple different screens to the next. Right. Yeah, well, and, and one of the cool things about doing Zodiac releasing from the lot of spirit and then looking at the angles from the lot of fortune is that those are the times where you see the actual turning points in a person's life where um, what they're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to do often in terms of their career or their overall life direction suddenly falls into alignment um, with their external circumstances and the things that are available to them so that they find themselves to be like the right person who's at the right place in the right time and they're able to then accomplish that thing. Um, which sometimes you see show up in like the charts of people who become like president, for example, mm -hmm. um, because they're in they're the person that's like there at the right time at the right place, but also is doing the right thing and making the choices at the right moment, as opposed to think about the opposite scenario, which is like the person who's in the wrong place is like the wrong person that's doing the wrong thing. Or even if they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it at the wrong time, let's say, that they're making actions and maybe they have good internal qualities and potential, but maybe um, their circumstances just don't allow for them to be successful at that time through things that are outside of their control. Yeah. And that's where, you know, sometimes in life you have to give something a go a couple different times. You might try to do something 10 years prior and the circumstances were just not making it happen for you. And then you try again, which we kind of see with, you know, like the loosing of the bond and the foreshadowing period a lot of the time where someone will plant the seed during the foreshadowing period, try to make something happen and circumstance will come around and say, not right now. And then it comes back around during the turning point or the loosing of the bond. And so there's ways that we can even look at that in the context of style releasing and see when is it going to line up? When is it going to be that time for you? So yeah, there's a lot of ways that that can be you know, delineated as well, which is just really helpful because sometimes it can feel really frustrating for people when they're trying to make something happen and just running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And that can get very discouraging. But when you're able to see, oh, hey, just like hang in there, you know, a couple years down the line, it will be your time. That can be very validating and affirming. Yeah, exactly. And um, and two things. One, you know, we're going to refer to Zodiac releasing a few times, but I did a full episode on Zodiac releasing in a separate episode. So for more of an introduction to that, just search for my earlier episode on Zodiac releasing on the podcast or on my YouTube channel. Um, but two, talking about this of like being in the right place at the right time or the person making the choices at the right time versus not, that I think is the fundamental thing that the person or the the astrologers who developed this technique of lots and especially a lot of fortune and a lot of spirit was trying to address and was trying to answer 
and to develop a, a means. What they were trying to do is they were trying to develop a means to identify um, fortune and circumstances and chance and things that are outside of a person's control. And they were trying to also identify um, choice and personal volition and intellect and the things that are within a person's control. And so the, like, imagine if you didn't have a system for astrology for that in astrology yet, but you wanted to develop one because you realize that there's these two major concepts of like chance versus choice. And you said to yourself, you know, how could we develop a technique to see that in a chart? Um, somebody around like the second century BCE or first century BCE had that philosophical problem in mind and they developed this technique as a way to try to isolate those two domains of life in a birth chart. And I believe actually that they were successful when they developed that technique or when they discovered this concept um, in actually doing that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's if you work with it enough, it's pretty incredible to see it come to life and to see how accurate it is and showing you when certain things are going to be, you know, happening to you outside of the realm of your control, like getting sick or getting in a car accident will often show up from the lot of fortune and then the lot of spirit will show you, you know, when are you going to get promoted or like have something happen in your professional world because you went after an opportunity, you know. So it's it's pretty incredible as a as a technique. Yeah, and a technique for showing good fortune and bad fortune, but also showing this concept that we have in our normal everyday language, but putting it into astrology, which is how to identify areas where sometimes a person is very fortunate versus how do you identify areas where a person is very unfortunate. And those are sometimes good keywords um, for looking at some of these, especially the lot of fortune itself is areas of um, good fortune and areas of bad fortune. If we're conceptualizing fortune, especially as representing circumstances outside of a person's control that sort of happened to them. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, that's going to bring us back to the calculations because um, I want to show you why spirit and fortune mean what they mean um, from a discovery I made back in 2007. So, you know, because uh, imagine, like we said, that you're somebody in like the second century BCE. You have the concept of the birth chart. Um, you may have the concept of the ascendant, um, but you want to figure out a way to specify further, you know, acts of volition versus acts of chance or fortune. So they came up with these calculations, and we've already talked about how the calculation for the lot of fortune is. Um, what are the? What do you want to say the calculation real quick while I share the screen? The algebraic formulation? Um, well, let's do the geometric one. So the geometric one, let me share my screen really quickly here, and I'll actually draw it out. There we go. Oh, okay. perfect. So the geometric calculation for the lot of fortune, as it's described in Paulus and most of the other Hellenistic astrologers, um, is in a day chart you start from the degree of the sun, and then you measure the distance 
to the degree of the moon. And then you measure the same distance out from the ascendant. But then they say, interestingly, the, the calculation switches depending on if you have a day or a night chart. They say if you have a night chart, to calculate the lot of fortune, you actually want to reverse the calculation and you start with the degree of the moon and then you measure the distance to the degree of the sun and then you measure that same distance from the degree of the ascendant. But both of these calculations are supposed to indicate um, the lot of fortune. So one of my questions then when I first started working on lots and really sat down to try to think about it and understand this ancient concept, because you know, one of the things that's funny is even though lots didn't survive um, into like the 20th century, into modern astrology for the most part, um, had been largely forgotten about until like 1980 when um, Robert Zoller published his book uh, on the Arabic parts that was largely based on his reading of the 13th century astrologer Guido Bonatti. So prior to that time, the lot of fortune was the only lot that kind of survived and was sometimes put into charts by modern astrologers in the 20th century um, because that was the one lot that was mentioned by like Ptolemy and by like William Lilly. So it was one of the few lots that actually survived, but nobody really knew like why the calculation was what it was and why it was supposed to do what it was supposed to do. Um, what little was even known about what it was supposed to do in the 20th century, which was still even in and of itself very little. Um, but so when I sent out to work on this, one of the questions is, and that you should ask yourself is like, why do both of these calculations, um, the day chart calculation and the night chart calculation indicate the same thing or result in the same point? And especially the question I had is what is the commonality between the two? Um, so, but this is what I realized. Eventually, we already know that the difference has to do with sect and the difference between day and night, and that that's what changes between the two of them. So what you do and what the commonality is between both of them you're counting to the luminary that's actually dark during that part of the day when it comes to a lot of fortune. So sect light is starting point, um, dark luminary is the ending point. So in both instance, let's start with the day chart calculation. In a day chart, the sun is the shining luminary that is like emanating light and is like lighting up the outside in the day. You like the, the rays, cosmic rays there? That. Looking that was good. Great. <laughs> okay. So the sun is the one that's shining in a day chart. And we're starting the calculation from that shining luminary, which is known as the sect light in Hellenistic astrology. And then, but we're going away from that. We're measuring the distance from that shining luminary, the sun. And we're going to the moon. And during the day, the moon is not the primary luminary. That's actually the luminary that's contrary to the sect in Hellenistic astrology. So in some ways, then, we're going from the concept of 
light to the concept of darkness when it comes to the calculation of the lot of fortune. And that's really obvious in the day chart calculation because even just by default, if we think of the sun, we think of the day automatically. Whereas if we think of the moon, we think of the night and we think about the moon, you know, coming out at night, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's part of it. But then it's interesting is the same um, thing involving sect holds up for the night chart calculation. So if we switch to the night chart, the calculation is to start from the moon and then count the distance to the sun. So at night, the moon is actually the shining luminary. So the moon is the celestial body that's emitting light at night because the sun is below the horizon and therefore it's dark out. But the moon, especially on, let's say, like a full moon, if the moon is above the horizon, is illuminating and is lighting up things and allowing you to see. It's the principle or the celestial body that's actually providing the most light at night. But in the lot of fortune calculation, you're starting with the moon as the luminary, the provider of light, and you're counting the distance to the sun. Um, but at night, the sun is dark. The sun is underneath the horizon. It's not providing light. And it's sort of like eclipsed or endarkened, you might say. So what, what I realized that that meant actually is that the commonality in both calculations is you're starting from the luminary that's representing light at that part of the day, and then you're going to the luminary that's representing darkness at that part of the day. So that means that the underlying principle of the lot of fortune is the concept of going from light to dark. So going from light to darkness. And what I eventually realized that this meant was that um, the, the Hellenistic astrologers and the inventor of the technique um, had a concept that light was associated with the soul and the intellect, and darkness was associated with the body and physical incarnation. And that partially had to do with a, a lot of ancient philosophical and spiritual and religious theories about the soul being this luminous um, thing that sort of descends through the planetary spheres at birth and picks up qualities from each of the planets, but then eventually goes down into the material world, which is associated with um, darkness. So darkness is associated with matter, and the soul and the spirit is associated with light. But for the lot of fortune, they were specifically associating it with the concept of darkness, and therefore with matter and physical incarnation. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Okay. Does that make sense? Anything about that that doesn't make sense? No, that made perfect sense to me. That was great. Okay, cool. So um, to run through it more quickly, the same principle also applies to the lot of spirit, um, but it's the reverse. So let me show my screen. So the calculation for the lot of spirit, according to the texts, is in a day chart, you start from the moon, and then you measure the distance to the sun. 
So pretty much all the texts say that's how you calculate spirit. But then by night, you're supposed to start with the sun and measure the distance to the moon. So then the question becomes like, what is the commonality between them? And it's basically the reverse of the lot of fortune, because in this instance, you're starting from the luminary that is eclipsed or is not providing light during that part of the day. So for example, the moon in a day chart is not the main luminary and the sun in a night chart is not the main luminary that's providing light because the sun is sleeping basically below the horizon. So in both instances, you're counting from the luminary that's dark or eclipsed to the luminary that's shining and providing light. So for example, with the day chart calculation, you go from the moon to the sun, and the sun is the shining luminary during that part of the day. So it's it's mimicking a principle of going from darkness to light. And similarly, in the night chart calculation, you're going from the sun, which is sleeping, to the moon, which is the sect light, which is providing light during that part of the day. So this sets up a principle where the lot of spirit calculation, the commonality between them that's true in both the day and night calculation is that you're going from light or you're going from, sorry, the concept of darkness to the concept of light. So it's something that's moving from darkness to light. So dark, light, and that is spirit. That is the concept that it's associating with spirit. So in all instances of both of these lots, the dominant principle is the one that you're counting to that's on the right. So in this instance, for the lot of spirit, the dominant principle is that you're counting to the sect light, or in other words, the luminary that's providing light, and therefore the underlying principle for the lot of spirit is the concept of light, and the underlying principle for the concept of fortune is darkness. Um, and by extension, darkness is associated with matter, the body, and physical incarnation, and spirit is associated with the soul, the mind, and the intellect. Yeah, it's making me think a lot about how when we're younger, we don't have those like reasoning faculties. We gain intelligence, we gain agency the older that we grow as well. So like through that journey of life, we almost move closer towards spirit and the luminary that's growing and increasing in light. Does mm. that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Um, so this is really important because like nobody had ever pointed this out before. It's not even really clear in the ancient texts. And it was something that only figured out because I realized we, we needed to look at the calculations from a geometrical perspective, um, like I showed earlier. And once that sort of breakthrough had been made, then and I started writing them out like this, you could kind of then see what the dominant principle was in the calculation in each case. Um, so that was a discovery I made in 2007 that then provides our access point for understanding the lots and especially fortune and spirit as, at a deeper level, but then also can help unlock even the calculation of other lots that were introduced at different points as well. Yeah, because all of the hermetic lots are going to use either fortune or spirit in their calculation. So that kind of basis of moving from darkness to lightness or lightness to darkness is going to be key and central even when we're looking at the lot of eros or the lot of necessity and so on and so forth.
Yeah. Why don't we mention that here, just the calculations for the hermetic lots and what those are. So um, later in the tradition, probably sometime around the third century, they don't show up in their fullest form until the fourth century in the work of Paulus Alexandrinus. There is this um, set of seven lots and each of them is associated with one of the seven traditional planets, uh, including the luminaries. So these have become known as the seven hermetic lots because they were uh, they originated in a text that was um, attributed to Hermes Trismegistus that was probably compo composed somewhere around the third century because Valens and the other second century astrologers don't seem to be aware of this full set of lots. Um, whereas Paulus by the fourth century is already drawing on an earlier text. So we think then because Paulus lived in the fourth century that this text must have been written in like the third or so. Yeah. So here's the seven hermetic lots. They are the lot of fortune, which is associated with the moon, the lot of spirit, which is associated with the sun, the lot of Eros, which is associated with Venus, the lot of victory, which is associated with Jupiter, the lot of necessity, which is associated with Mercury, the lot of courage, which is associated with Mars, and the lot of nemesis, which is associated with Saturn. So these are the seven hermetic lots. They have interesting um, calculations that are now different than the original ones that we were familiar with because we see fortune and spirit here. And these are the, the normal standard calculations from them where you either measure the distance from the moon to the sun or from the sun to the moon. And then the same distance from the ascendant brings you to the lot. But the hermetic lot calculations for the other planets um, start with or end with actually a lot and start with either the lot of spirit or the lot of fortune. So the lot of Eros, for example, in a date chart, you're supposed to measure the distance from the lot of spirit, the degree of spirit, to the degree of Venus, and then the same distance from the ascendant. Or in a night chart, you're supposed to start with Venus and then measure the distance to the lot of spirit and then measure the same distance from the ascendant. So this starts introducing that while most lots are measured from planet A, from one planet to another, and then the same from the ascendant, there's other ways of calculating lots where they can sometimes be measured from a lot to a planet or a planet to a lot or other things like that. Yeah, exactly. That fundamentally a lot can be just measuring from one point in a chart to another point in the chart and then measuring the same distance from the ascendant. So in this instance, we're incorporating lots into the calculation. In other instances, there can be, um, sometimes they calculate the distance from one planet to um, a house in the chart, like the lot of death, for example, is associated with the eighth house, and you're supposed to measure the distance to the eighth house from another point. Um, yeah, so there's different ways you can do lot calculations, and you'll see a lot of variations. Although the fundamental principle is just you know counting from point A to point B, and then from the from the ascendant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the hermetic lots are ones that you've specialized in, in especially, right? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time with them in client practice, and I did a lecture and a guidebook, and I did a collaborative lecture with the astrologer Chloe Margarita on the lot of Eros. And I think that they just have a lot to say about 
a person's life and their circumstances. And like I was saying before, they offer a different lens on the chart that you just don't get if you're not taking them into consideration. And so they can be really illuminating for a lot of different areas and topics of life when we want to get more specific, because sometimes, you know, the sun can mean so many different things. And then a lot of spirit is a little bit more of a condensed meaning of the sun. And so it's almost like a way to get a bit more specific about certain topics, which can be really helpful. Nice. Okay. Um, and yeah, and I uh, have done a lot with the lots, I or the hermetic lots. I wrote a paper titled, I think, The Theoretical Rationale Underlying the Seven Hermetic Lots back in 2009 um, for a paper for a journal that Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro were doing called the Tradition Journal for several years. Um, but you can Google it to find that paper. And um, I also developed a technique where I've I've used a lot of arrows using this calculation from Paulus and from the Hermetic text a lot. And in 2005, in November of 2005, when I was first learning zodiac releasing, and we were doing um, study sessions at Project Hindsight to work out the technique um, after one study session where we were using spirit and fortune, which is how Valens teaches it, and we were applying it to example charts. Um, I went back to my room at one point after one study session in November of 2005 and tried to see if you could do releasing from the lot of arrows to study a person's love life and relationships. And I was actually really surprised to find out that you could. And then it worked actually very well for timing things in a person's love life by using the lot of arrows and applying it within the context of this sort of um, exotic timing technique that comes from Vedius Valens. Yeah, it was revolutionary work and, you know, it kind of pushed me as well in my studies to see if we could do that from other lots. And I've had a lot of success with releasing from the lot of necessity to see things related to necessity and different things that are related to that. So can, there's a lot more work to be done with the lots, but it's an exciting field to be kind of specializing in and really getting into because there's just so much you can do with them and so much you can glean from a chart when you're, yeah, working with them. For sure. Um, and that brings up that um, you can get the hermetic lots or for sure the three lots calculated at a lot of websites. Um, at this point, um, I had encouraged a lot of different websites to integrate those. And I know you can get them calculated on um, astro.com. Um, there's also Peter from AstroSeek has a calculator. I mean, because I mean, I guess I should say first. You can use calculators, but please don't like bypass the just like eyeballing it, doing the geometrical calculation on your chart first so you understand how they work and how simple it is to calculate them. But once you do understand that, there are calculators and free ones that you can use. There's some really great resources, especially on AstroSeek, um, astroseek.com, where Peter, the creator of AstroSeek, he has one page set up where it will calculate very easily the lot of fortune, spirit, and arrows using um, the calculations that we we use and prefer from Paulus um, in a pre pretty straightforward way. So it's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think he also has an option in the traditional calculator if you have that switched on to just display the seven hermetic lots. So you can actually get all seven if you're using the traditional calculator when you input your birth time. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Good. Um, that's really cool. There, um, there is one thing to mention really quickly, but I don't want to dwell on it. Where 
there's variant, there's two different calculations for Eros and necessity. Um, Valens has earlier calculations in Dorotheus where for Eros, you measure, you measure the distance from like spirit to fortune, or actually it's, it's the reverse. I believe it's from fortune to spirit for Eros. And then the same from the ascendant or for the lot of necessity, it's from um, spirit to fortune and then the same from the ascendant. And that seems to have been the earlier approach to calculating Eros and um, necessity where it didn't involve Venus or Mercury at all, but instead it was something that was being extrapolated even further from the two fundamental lots, which are spirit and fortune. Um, and that has its own interesting like rationale and usage and everything else. Um, for Eros, though, I've really liked and have preferred the calculation from Paulus because it actually integrates the planet Venus directly into the calculation, um, as well as the the lot of spirit as well. Yeah, I also prefer the Paulus calculations, and I think it's a nice rationale of using all of the planets, like each of the seven planets has their own lot. So that specification that we were talking about before becomes really clear when you're using those calculations rather than you know, using the balance calculations for Eros and necessity, but it can get confusing if you don't know that there's different formulas for those. Right, for sure. Um, and one thing is that generally speaking, in, in Paulus at least, the lot of nemesis and courage are treated as pretty negative lots or indicating challenging things, uh, and necessity is as well, because they're associating them with fortune Whereas Eros and Victory are associated with pretty positive things because they associate with the benefics and with a lot of spirit, um, whereas Courage and Nemesis are associated with the malefics. Yeah, I've always thought that was really fascinating just to highlight how the more challenging things that can happen to someone in their life are usually not a product of their own decisions, um, but are just like a, a kind of a product of fate and circumstance with using mm -hmm. fortune in those calculations. And you see the definitions of necessity and courage and nemesis and it's like death and destruction and constraining circumstances and things that sound really difficult and then you go to you know eros and victory and it's like associations and friendships and desires and pleasures and it has a much more benefic tone to it and those are the things that we tend to have a bit more agency over or choose so that kind of underlying rationale is really interesting to dig into as well yeah for sure um, so I think Paulus, Paulus Alexandrinus, um, from Greenbaum's translation, he says that the lot of arrows signifies appetites and desires occurring by choice, and it becomes responsible for friendship and favor. Um, and then Rhetorius says the lot of Venus or the lot of love signifies, because eros means love in Greek, signifies the desires and lusts and loves made in the same sense, and it is indicative of gratification. Yeah, exactly. So the, the concept of gratification, right? It's something that fills you up. It's something that makes you feel good at the end of the day, whereas you read the nemesis stuff and it's usually not the things that make you feel good, like exile and banishment and things related to those topics. Right. Yeah, that is not one of my favorite feelings, that <laughs> common common feeling of exile and banishment. Yeah, are you getting exiled and banished frequently, or is, that, is that a recurring theme in your life? Not so far. I mean, we'll have to see after this episode comes out. Um, <laughs> all right, so I think that's good 
this this might be time to now that we've gone all the calculation and conceptual and philosophical stuff maybe it's time to get into some practice yeah that sounds great if you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. All right, so we're back, and um, I need to touch on two other little things I forgot to mention. One of them is the um, name for the Lot of Spirit, um, which, you know, in the texts, it's called the Lot of Diamond. Um, and that's something that as more people have become interested in the concept of Diamond and research surrounding that. Um, some people have um, started calling it Daimon, and I know that's what Riley translates it as in Valens, for example, in his translation of Valens, as he leaves the word untranslated as Daimon, whereas um, earlier on in the Project Hindsight uh, translations, Schmidt translated the word because he had this aversion to leaving words untranslated, and he translated it as the lot of spirit. Um, and nowadays, I can see different astrologers going different directions, where some are calling it the lot of spirit, others are calling it the lot of diamond. You know, either way is correct. Um, I call it the lot of um, spirit because I think that's an accurate translation of what the Greek word diamond means. Is if you ask somebody, you know, what is a diamond? It's it's like a spirit. It's either a guardian spirit or it's like an intermediary spirit between the divine celestial realm and the terrestrial realm, or it's the internal spirit within us um, that we associate with our mind and our intellect. So that's one of the reasons why I don't leave it untranslated, and I prefer to actually just call it the lot of spirit, because I think that actually gets to and explains what it is um, a little bit clearer to me at least than just calling it the lot of diamond is, but I, I understand and, and sympathize with either way. Yeah, I also use a lot of spirit, but both are correct and both make sense to me. Okay. So that was one thing. The other thing is the glyph for the lot of spirit. For the lot of fortune, we have a pretty standard glyph that's been in use for quite a long time now, for over centuries, that's sort of become the glyph for the lot of fortune. And it's this one on the left here for those watching the video version. Or for the audio people, it's basically just a circle with an X through it. And that's the symbol for the lot of fortune that's relatively standard and has become relatively standard through the, the centuries. Um, I think usually it's like there's some interpretations of like a, a an X or a cross representing the cross of matter, I think is, pro is part of the rationale for that. And circle is usually thought to represent like um, spirit. So the X in the middle is emphasizing the sort of matter connotations more if you wanted to go into that sort of like esoteric interpretation of symbols direction. So when it comes to a lot of spirit though, um, I wrote an article in like 2014, I believe, titled Proposing um, a Glyph for the Lot of Spirit, where I 
explained and outlined my rationale for using um, this specific glyph, which is like a capitalized sans serif version of the Greek letter phi, um, which for those watching the video or listening to the audio version, it's basically just a circle with a vertical line drawn down the middle that extends slightly outside of the circumference of the circle. Um, so this was actually, it was something I thought about for a long time. Um, and I went through like a defense of like different arguments and like rationales for why I thought that should be. One of the reasons is I thought the symbol should, um, you know, be similar to the lot of fortune symbol while still being um, simple and still being distinguishable, being distinct from the lot of fortune symbol, as well as easy to draw by hand. Um, the other thing from a symbolic standpoint is I thought it made sense because with the lot of spirit glyph like this, you have like the circle, which represents spirit, and then you have a vertical line going from the top to the bottom, perhaps representing symbolically the descent of the soul through the planetary spheres into matter, as well as the ascent of the soul through the planetary spheres after death that goes back through the spheres and gives up the properties to each of the planets before ascending back into the celestial realm. So that's kind of my like cute little symbolic interpretation of it. Um, originally in like the Project Hindsight text, like once I had gone through that and circled back and decided that was going to be the glyph I would use, um, I went back and looked and realized that the Project Hindsight people had already used different glyphs and I was aware of that. And they had used the fee symbol, a serif version, um, as a sort of like stand-in temporary symbol um, in the preliminary translations, as well as other Greek letters for other lots as stand-ins for different lots. But I decided this would be a good like permanent one to adopt. So that's what I use. And some programs have followed that and integrated that as well. Um, based on my suggestion, I completely forgot to like explain that in my book. I just like showed a lot of spirit at one point using that glyph, but I don't really explain why or, or sort of justify it. So I meant to like put that on the record. Um, that being said, there's other possibilities, possible ways to depict um, the lot of spirit. I know there's one that a number of people are using following some medieval texts where the lot of spirit is represented by um, a circle with two squiggly lines coming out of the bottom of it um, that's used in some medieval text that might represent maybe symbolically like the spirit or daimon um, itself as like a spirit entity with a tail, almost like a comet. Um, and I know some people are following that one. Um, and Dorian Greenbaum promoted that one based on her research of the daimon um, as part of her PhD thesis. Um, there's other people that just do like a circle with an S in it for spirit, which is simple as well. So there's a lot of different options, but that's my my current one in terms of um, looking at the symbols. Yeah, that's really cool. I wasn't aware of the history of your decision behind making that glyph. So it was really nice to hear that. I think that's a great uh, rationale for for using that. Yeah. And it's all in that article. If people want to read the full rationale, it's titled Proposing a Glyph for the Lot of Spirit on HellenisticAstrology.com. All right. So all of that's good. 
let's transition into talking about the interpretation of lots and how they're used in chart delineations at this point and get into the good stuff. So um, one of the things you do when you calculate spirit and fortune, which we'll focus on largely for the purpose of this, is seeing what house the lot falls in um, can be very important and can in and of itself indicate things from the very start. And one of the things that's important about lots is that you calculate the lot and then whatever sign the lot falls in, it marks the entirety of that sign with the significations of that lot from zero to 30 degrees of the sign, no matter how early or how late the lot is in the sign. This is how they're consistently used in the example charts in Vedius Valens and in other Hellenistic astrologers, is they're essentially using them in the same way that the ascendant was used um, in whole sign houses, where um, no matter what degree the ascendant is located in, in the rising sign, whatever sign the ascendant is in, it marks that entire sign as the first house. Um, so they basically apply the same principle to lots in that you calculate the lot, it marks a specific degree, but then it activates that entire sign or infuses that entire sign with its topics. So, and in this way, this is both an extension of whole sign houses and whole sign house logic in Hellenistic astrology, but it's also one of the things that helps confirm that they were using whole sign houses in the Hellenistic texts because they're basically doing the exact same thing with lots that they were doing with the ascendant and other things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you want to get more specific, you can also look at the bounds and the decans. And I think in Greenbaum's work, she said that there was some decanic influences marked on like cuneiform tablets or something from like the 300s. So we do have, you know, historical precedents for also using and incorporating the delineations of the decans with the lots, which is a really cool thing and something I do a lot in my practice. But if you're just starting out, then just looking at the sign is a great way because it's still going to import all of its significations into that house and sign in a chart. Yeah. I mean, if you go through the example charts and balance, especially in book two, he very consistently calculates, or also in Dorotheus, just what sign they're located in and then looking at the entirety of that sign as if it's been marked with the qualities of another house. And that's actually part of the interpretation that's really important is um, especially let's say when looking at the lot of fortune, whatever house the lot of fortune falls in, it will import additional topics into that whole sign house that will then double up on top of the normal topics associated with that house. So for example, as we mentioned earlier, if the lot of fortune falls in the fourth whole sign house, the fourth house represents um, the home, the family, and the living situation. Um, and those are its basic significations and meanings of the fourth house in ancient astrology. But if the lot of fortune falls there, that means the fourth house and that entire sign will also signify things having to do with um, matter, the body, physical incarnation, and chance or luck or fortune and fortunate circumstances. Um, so then it will signify that independently, but also sometimes merge those significations. So in some instances, we'll see some natives here in just a few minutes when you get into example charts, where if they have the, the lot of fortune in the fourth house, it literally indicated um, that the native was born into positive circumstances when it came to their parents and their family.
Yeah. And it might be worth mentioning the concept of fortune houses here as well, because I think that's something we might touch on, which is the notion that the lot of fortune almost acts as like a secondary ascendant and that the following and subsequent houses are also going to import those meanings and give additional kind of significance for, you know, like in that example of having the lot of fortune in the fourth house, then the fifth house is also going to have second house significations and so on and so forth as you move throughout the chart. Yeah, that was a really crucial thing that um, Valens mentions and that he draws from some of the very earliest texts from the text of Nechepso and Pedasiris, which is one of the foundational texts of Hellenistic astrology and one of the first texts, one of the earliest texts that we know of that talked about the lots so that it may have been the one that introduced it because many of the later astrologers seem to go back to incite this mysterious text. Um, and Valens actually quotes from it when talking about the lot of fortune. But what Valens says is that you can calculate the lot of fortune and then whatever sign it falls in, the entirety of that sign becomes like the first house. And it has the same significations of the first house, just like if you were doing whole sign houses from the ascendant. But instead, what you do with the lot of fortune is you turn the chart and you imagine that the lot of fortune is on the left side of the chart and coincides with the first house. And then the sign after the lot of fortune downwards in zodiacal order signifies the second house and things associated with the second house, like money and finances. Um, the third sign from fortune is the third house and so on and so forth, all the way around the signs of the zodiac. Um, and Valens even specifically sometimes emphasizes the fortune houses more than the houses from the ascendant in some instances, especially when he's dealing with certain topics. Like for example, in his chapter on death and indications for death and like the manner of a person's death, he actually focuses more on the eighth house from fortune than he does on looking at the eighth house from the ascendant. Um, or in another chapter, and a bunch of example charts when he's talking about um, the native's financial success and resources, um, he focuses on the 11th house relative to the lot of fortune, and he calls that the place of acquisition um, because it has to do with the acquiring of goods and the circumstances surrounding the native's acquisition of wealth. Um, and he actually focuses on that as a hugely important um, house, the 11th whole sign house from fortune as um, the access point for studying those things. And we'll see some great example charts here in a minute of how that actually works. Um, but so this is again important because then it also re-emphasizes that they're doing whole sign houses relative to the lot of fortune, um, which then again mirrors that they're doing whole sign houses as well from the sign of the ascendant or the rising sign. So there's this sort of like whole sign logic that's infused not just in the ascendant houses, but also when it comes to the lot of fortune at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the things that I thought was really interesting from some of Schmidt's teachings is that he talks about the notion that we move closer and closer to the lot of fortune as we age and as our kind of fate becomes a bit more defined. So you might find that as you get older, that you relate more to your lot of fortune as that secondary ascendant point as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, 
like Valens has some rules for sure about interpreting, you know, what side, and he he especially seems to emphasize fortune indicating the early part of life, but then the ruler indicating things that happen later on. Um, at least in terms of just like looking through his example charts and some of the things I was finding in rereading that text recently. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention with fortune houses is I think there's a modern misconception that was made have been a mistake that was made in the early phases of Project Hindsight where they thought all of the lots were being used for derived houses. And that's not actually the case. They didn't, I haven't found references to them using the lot of spirit and houses from spirit necessarily. They only seem to derive houses from the lot of fortune. So that's one kind of really important point um, that I meant to mention because I think there's some misconceptions out there um, based on some some statements like a while ago about some of their early like preliminary assumptions about about the lots. Yeah, I haven't looked too much into spirit houses and things like that. I know there's a talk that's going around. I think it's one of the Robs did a talk on that a long time ago. Yeah, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm stating that just because okay. like there's no textual evidence for that. Um, and I think it was based on a mistaken assumption. If you read through Valens, like he only ever does um, the houses from from Fortune, basically. Yeah. And even when we're thinking about zodiacal releasing, you're still always considering the angles from Fortune, even when you're releasing from Spirit or Arrow. So that kind of holds up with that rationale as well. Yeah, exactly. And that goes back to something in the Nshepso text and something that Ptolemy emphasizes as well that has to do with... Um, a lot of fortune acting as like a lunar ascendant, um, which has this whole sort of complicated rationale that I, I won't go into here because it'll take us back to like calculation and all this other stuff that we're moving away from at this point. But it's interesting that, um, you know, in the Indian tradition, which partially over at least over the past 2000 years seems to have arisen as a result of a synthesis of Hellenistic astrology and indigenous Indian astrology. Um, a lot of concepts like the 12 houses and how the Hellenistic astrologers treated the significations of the houses seem to show up in the earliest Sanskrit text of the Avana Jataka, if that's one of the earliest um, dated texts on natal astrology, essentially, in, in the Sanskrit or Indian tradition. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is the concept of lots doesn't seem to have been transmitted or doesn't seem to have been picked up by the Indian astrologers in the early Sanskrit texts. But one of the things that is interesting that they did pick up that they almost seem to use in the place of fortune houses is they use the what's called the Chandra Lagna or the moon ascendant so that whatever sign the moon is located in, the Indian astrologers will um, calculate whole sign houses from the moon sign and read them from there. And I think somehow something happened where they had picked up the idea of fortune houses perhaps but maybe because either they didn't use the concept of lots or didn't like it or or it wasn't transmitted or something they ended up just applying the idea of fortune houses to the moon or decided that the moon for whatever reason was a more suitable starting point perhaps due to the earlier indigenous Indian astrology having a much greater focus on the moon through the nakshatras which is like the indigenous primary zodiacal system of India. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, just in terms of historical things and comparisons. All right, a lot of fortune, fortune houses, all that's important. 
last thing as a preliminary thing for studying lots, and I'll pull up example charts in a minute, but once you calculate a lot, you look at the house it's in, and we talked about merging significations with whatever whole sign house it falls in from the ascendant. Um, we talked about fortune houses, but also when you're looking at a lot, you look at both planets that are in the same sign as the lot as contributing something from their nature to that lot. So in some basic ways, this can be things like, do you have a benefic that's in the same sign as the lot of fortune? If so, that's going to indicate more positive things for the body, the physical incarnation, and things pertaining to luck and to possessions. Whereas if you have a malefic in the same sign as a lot of fortune, especially if it's poorly placed, that may indicate more challenging or unfortunate circumstances surrounding the significations of the lot of fortune or that lot. So that's one basic thing is look for planets in the lot. The other thing is to look at the planet that rules the lot or is the domicile lord of the lot. So for example, if the lot of fortune is in the sign of Gemini, then you would look at the planet Mercury to see what Mercury is doing in the chart and what its condition is. And then it'll give you indications for um, how the lot will work out in the native's life. Yeah. And then you also want to take into condition, uh, consideration what house that lot is in and whether that house is considered to be one that's a bit more conducive to the life and affirming, or if it's a little bit more challenging, like the sixth or the twelfth, then that's considered to be something that's going to create more difficult circumstances for the native. Exactly. So that becomes a really crucial thing is what is the condition of the ruler of the lot because it's the equivalent of the ruler of a house. And just in the same way that when we're studying different houses in a birth chart, like the seventh house for relationships, and we look at the ruler of the seventh house and where it's placed and what house it's located in the birth chart, we're applying the same process to each of the lots because the lots themselves are being treated as houses. Um, and in fact, that's a really important point that in the Hellenistic texts, oftentimes they'll call them lots, but they'll also refer to them as places or houses as well. And sometimes if you're reading some translations, that's important to be aware of because it can get confusing when they start referring to like the house of fortune or the place of fortune. Sometimes that means they're referring to um the the lot of fortune and the sign that it's in yeah absolutely okay all right um so other conditions for what are some of the the conditions i know i have a list here that maybe it would be good to show um for good and bad conditions for the ruler of a lot so some of the things you can look for for good conditions are, is the lot in a good house? If if so, it will indicate positive things surrounding the topic of that lot versus is the lot in a bad house? Then that will indicate more challenging circumstances for that lot. So for example, having the lot of fortune in the 10th house or the 11th house is viewed as very positive for the native's fortune, whereas having the lot of fortune in the 12th house or the 6th house could be more challenging. Yeah, and just generally, they they tend to say that any lot in an angular house is going to be a bit more positive, um, especially if it's the first or the tenth. For sure. Um, other things, like I mentioned earlier, having benefics 
co-present or in the same sign as a lot is positive. Having malefics co-present is challenging or negative. Having benefics configured to or aspecting the lot is positive, whereas having malefics configured, especially by a hard aspect, like a square or an opposition, is uh, negative or challenging. Having the malefics be not aspecting the lot, being an aversion to it, can be positive. Having benefics being an aversion to the lot can be negative if there's no support from the benefics. Um, having the ruler or the lord of the lot being a benefic versus having the lord of the lot being a malefic is another consideration. Having the ruler of the lot being dignified by being in its own sign or exaltation or in a mutual reception is very positive, whereas having the lord debilitated in the sign of its fall or detriment can be very challenging. Um, having the Lord in a good house is good. Having the Lord in a bad house is bad. Having the Lord aspect the lot is positive versus not aspecting the lot is negative because then the, the Lord cannot support the lot itself. Um, having the Lord be configured to benefics, especially by a superior trine or square conjunction is good. Having the Lord be configured to malefics, especially by a superior square opposition or conjunction is normally bad, especially if the malefic is contrary to the sect. Having the Lord be an aversion to malefics is usually good. Having the Lord be an aversion to benefics is usually bad. And then finally, having the Lord be visible and more than 15 degrees away from the sun is good. Whereas having the Lord of the lot being under the beams, or other words, within 15 degrees of the sun, is usually interpreted as bad. Yep. Those are pretty comprehensive. You have anything? Yeah, there? pretty comprehensive. I feel like that covers pretty much everything. You just want to take into consideration most of the things that you generally do when you're looking at a planet. Is it a good shape? Does it have support? Does it have resources? And it's going to be very similar when you're looking and working with the lots. Um, maybe one thing to note is that lots don't cast aspects. They only receive them as well. That's a really great point. Yeah. So you can always look to aspects that planets are making to the sign. We're talking about especially whole sign aspects and mm -hmm. the major aspects of like sextile, square, trine, opposition, conjunction um, to the lot itself because in Hellenistic astrology, the planets were able to, to aspect signs um, and especially to the extent that certain signs represent certain topics, the planets then support or hinder those topics by aspecting them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Let's let's take a look at some example charts, shall we? Yes, let's do that. All right. Starting point. Let's start out with some easier ones. I'm just looking at, through some of my examples. Do you have any like positive examples? Because I have a lot of positive examples, and I also have some some negative examples. I have some more probably challenging examples. Um, but if we're talking about maybe like the lot of spirit, there's some, there's some positive ones. Um, here's actually let's, I mean, let's start with fortune just so, cause that's our archetypal lot. Yeah. That's um, probably a better idea. Here's a basic one I have that just shows the simple principle. Cause I usually like to start simple and then work from there. So this is the birth chart I've used a bunch of times before of an Italian man named Maurizio Gucci. And he was like the grandson of the founder of the Gucci fashion empire. And 
as a result of that, he inherited when his father died this like multi multi million dollar um, estate that made him extremely rich and extremely wealthy as a result of that parental inheritance, basically. And in his chart, he has Cancer rising and he has the lot of fortune in Libra, which is the fourth sign from Cancer. <clears throat> And therefore, it's the fourth whole sign house. So he has the lot of fortune, which indicates like material circumstances and things outside of your control in the fourth house. And he inherited a bunch of money from his father. So yeah, some, sometimes, <laughs> it, sometimes it's pretty simple. Like sometimes it's just like that. It's just the lot, whatever sign it falls in, mixes its significations with that house and tells you in this instance that there's something extremely fortunate about the fourth house for this person, which in this instance, if you were to make that as a statement, like let's say it's a prediction, let's say you don't know this person, they've come in, they're a client, and you see the lot of fortune is the fourth house, that is like one potential thing you could say that there may be fortunate circumstances surrounding the home and the family and the parents and the living situation. And in his instance, at least, that would be strikingly true, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, you're definitely going to want to take into consideration that this is ruled by the benefic of sect. So Libra being ruled by Venus. And so Venus is aspecting the lot. The lot is angular. There's yeah, a lot of conditions I... that make that much more positive rather than if this was a night chart and the fourth house was ruled by Saturn, we might be uh, whistling a different tune in terms of how positive those circumstances are. Yeah. And that is the next step is like there's conditions after that. Um, but just to establish like a basic fundamental starting point for people that are new to lots, you know, pay attention to what house the lot falls in. And that can immediately tell you a lot right from the start. Yeah, absolutely. So then we start layering things on top of that because it's not just the position of the lot. Um, we also have to pay attention to planets that are in the sign of the lot as well. So for him, he has the sun and Neptune and Mercury there. So already, because he has a like a semi-stellium there of three planets um, in his fourth whole sign house, we know that this is a great area of activity and perhaps importance for him. Um, but we don't necessarily know that it's like a fortunate area where he's just like super lucky. It's really the placement of the lot of fortune that starts to clue us in that there's something extra there, that there's something almost potentially extraordinary there that sets him apart and is unique and different from other people. Um, so that's one of the clues and that's one of the starting points for starting to understand really what fortune indicates is that sometimes um, it can fall in a house and can tell you that there's something extraordinary or there's something unique um, something in some instances that could be very lucky or fortunate in terms of circumstances by falling in that house. Yeah, it's almost like where fated events are going to occur to you. So him not controlling the the fact that he got that inheritance that it came from the family, we see all those fourth house significations and also just the meaning of fortune and how pronounced that is in his chart coming to life here. Exactly. And, it, and it's something like he didn't do anything necessarily to like inherit that he was just like in this family line and like you had mentioned the like you know there's so much discussion lately about like the the nepo baby things this guy is like the original like nepo baby 
um, in terms of that, just in terms of, and, and I, I don't actually even have a strong opinion because I don't uh, about like Nepo babies or, or appropriateness of that or whatever. Um, because for me as an astrologer, it's just a, it's interesting as a classification of, you know, in different lives, there's some people who are extraordinarily or uniquely fortunate or unfortunate in some areas of their life. And we can see this both in the lives of individuals, but it's one of the reasons why astrologers love studying the charts of celebrities and notable people, because sometimes they have um, in their lives, things go to, to, to extremes, basically. So they have extreme circumstances of like fortunate things, or they have extreme circumstances of unfortunate things. And as astrologers, one of our questions is, how can we see that in a chart? How could we predict that ahead of time? Or even in a reading, how can we articulate why that's the case? And this is where we circle back around to understanding what the motivation for these lots was originally, because somebody very early on in the tradition wanted to identify that and be able to talk about it and articulate exactly where that comes from. And part of where that comes from is here with the lot of fortune. Yeah, it's one of those things that they mention a lot to take into consideration what that person's baseline circumstances are and predict accordingly. And so if you're sitting with someone who is not very wealthy, who is a working person, you're not going to predict for them what you would predict for a king, you know, and one of the things that can tell you about those baseline circumstances rather than the person who's sitting in front of you is the lot of fortune. And so it can be a really elucidating factor when you're trying to just determine that and like uh, the Paulist quote saying that it speaks to privilege and circumstance, you know, we really see that showing up in that example pretty profoundly. And if you took into consideration all of the different goods and bads of that list that you made, he, quite a few of those um, positive ones, like I think both benefics were aspecting, it was in a good house, you know, so you start almost tallying up like a plus one of how positive is this. The more you have, the more fortunate or eminent that person is probably going to be or the circumstances that they're born into are going to be a bit more fortunate. For sure. And it actually reminds me of um, an episode I did a few years ago with Diana Rose Harper on astrology as radical self-care. And one of the things we talked about in that episode was privilege and like and identifying one's own privilege and being aware of that when operating in the world. Um, but also through the lens of the chart and through the lens of astrology, sometimes being able to identify that because those sometimes become things that are easier for you that you take for granted that other people don't have and therefore don't take for granted. But sometimes it can also create a sort of blind spot for a person where because they've always been fortunate or lucky or had things come easily in a certain area of their life, they assume it's the same for everyone. Um, which is a very important thing to be aware of. And it's also it's a little annoying, frankly, in the context of astrological consultations, because sometimes when you do a delineation about pointing out the area in which a person is fortunate in their life, um, because they always had that or because they they tend to take it for granted. And so therefore they don't tend to realize that like not everybody, you know, has the same good fortune in that same area of their life. Yeah, absolutely. And 
it's one of the things that you can point to and people say, oh yeah, that part of my life tends to go well, but they might not realize just how well that does go for them when they aren't aware of maybe some of the circumstances that could be impacting other people in that area of life. And it's the beauty of astrology is it speaks to every circumstance, you know, on the far ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Exactly. Um, so let's articulate a few scenarios. Let's just say then it's like some people like this person, for example, maybe you're lucky when it comes to your parents. Like, you know, you have, let's say you have both parents and you've had a good upbringing from your parents and they supported you and were um, good role models or something like that. And let's think about that as a circumstance and a sort of like archetypal scenario versus let's imagine the opposite. Let's say you weren't um, lucky. Let's say you're unfortunate when it came to parents. Let's say you lost one or both parents, or let's say that you um, had a parent that was like um, not there or absent or didn't take care of you or didn't provide for you or wasn't supportive as you grew up in some way. So that in some way there's a distinct sense of the opposite of fortune, of sort of like misfortune when it comes to that area. Um, but going through other houses, let's say you're fortunate when it comes to relationships. Like there's people where relationships come easily or they just happen to like meet the love of their life and they've had like one major significant relationship and they're happy with that and they live happily ever after. Um, there's other people that are fortunate in their career. There's people that are fortunate when it comes to friends or children or uh, money or pretty much all of the other 12 houses. Um, even the first house, I remember Diana mentioned like some people have like like pretty privilege, which yeah. I know is is like a double-edged sword, but that, you know, can be like an asset in life that is something, you know, as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like a known statistic that women who are more conventionally attractive end up earning more money. So you can see the ways that, that then impacts their material circumstances as well. And people who conform to those types of expectations of, you know, like you have longer hair, you wear makeup, or you do this, or you do that, then you're going to make more money. There is an expectation to conform. And so when you don't, you're also going to feel, you know, the effects of that. And that can be a really difficult thing to navigate. And so, yeah, I think taking into consideration all those forms of privilege or, you know, a person might be really lucky with health and never understand what it's like to be in chronic pain, you know, and like those circumstances. And there's just not even an ability to understand what that might be like if you've always been healthy, you know? Yeah. I know people that just like, anytime they get a cold, they're like a little sniffly <laughs> for like a day or something and then it's gone and they're fine. Whereas there's other people, you know, like myself where you get a cold and I'm just like out for like a week and yeah, that's a good point. It's like that can be a privilege as itself, just having like a strong constitution or good like immune system or something. Yeah, it's hard to do pretty much anything when you don't feel well or when you're in constant pain. So that's a huge, you know, um, area of privilege, I think, is just how strong and fortunate you are when it comes to your physical health as well. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that are outside of your control that are sometimes given to you or things that are outside of control in that it's not a matter of choice, even if sometimes choice can come into it in terms of us taking advantage of our assets. Let's say if we have a specific strength or we have a privilege that sometimes we use to our advantage, um, you know, that's where the spirit portion and the the will portion comes into play. But the fortune end of things is those circumstances that are outside of our control that are given to us or are allotted to us 
um, because we've sort of received that as our portion or as our lot in life um, from chance or from fate. Yeah, absolutely. This is good. I like this. All right. This is why we're finding some good stuff here or through through the dialogue and through the conversation. And that's why I wanted to do this episode as more of a, a, a winding like discussion where we're like going to different places because sometimes those are some of my favorite episodes. There's the like the highly regimented prepared ones, but then there's sometimes the looser ones where through the conversation you find the thread. Um, and I think that's what we're doing here. It's working pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go back to our very first example chart where you had brought up something, which is that um, it's not enough just to look at the house of the lot. It's not enough just to look at planets. The next most important thing that you've got to pay attention to is the ruler of the lot and where it's placed in the chart, what house it's in, and what its condition is. And this is where we see things really get unlocked when it comes to this chart of Maurizio Gucci with the lot of fortune in Libra in the fourth whole sign house, because fortune's in Libra, we know that the ruler of that sign is v is the benefic planet Venus. So we look to see what Venus is doing in the chart. And we find Venus in Leo in the second house of finances. Additionally, we find that Venus is actually in extremely good condition in this chart. Um, it's a night chart. So we know that Venus is the benefic of the sect, which means it's the most positive planet in the chart. Um, now it's ruling the lot of fortune and it's placed in the second house of finances. So it's a benefic. It's also in actually a mutual reception with the sun, with um, Venus's own ruler, because Venus is in Leo. So it's ruled by the sun, which is in Libra, which is in the sign of the lot of fortune itself. So the sun and Venus are exchanging signs, which sets up a kind of um, essential dignity, essentially, for Venus, which is the next best thing. If a planet's not in its domicile, if it's not in its exaltation, then the next best thing is to be in a mutual reception with its domicile lord, um, is my usual hierarchy of, of interpreting that. And here we find that Venus is in a mutual reception in addition to being the benefic of the sect. So it's not only um, good based on sect and being a benefic, but it's also good based on zodiacal dignity as well. Yeah. And via aspect, it's trining Jupiter within three degrees, which is a condition of bonification. So that really boosts up Venus as well. Jupiter is in its own sign in Sagittarius. So that's going to create even more fortunate circumstances. And the law itself is averse to both malefics, both Mars and Saturn. So it's protected from any harm. So it's just getting all of the good stuff and none of the bad, basically. Yeah, especially it is a, an aversion to to Saturn, which is over in Virgo. So Saturn can't see um, Venus through a major aspect. It does have a square with Mars, um, which is a little tricky mid-Scorpio, which we'll talk about in a little bit because there's mixed fortune. But for the most part, his fortune is that therefore extremely good. And we can see the connection between the fourth house where the lot of fortune is and the native receiving good fortune from parents, but then what is the source of that fortune? And it's in the house of the ruler, which is Venus, which is it's in the house of finances. And he inherited a bunch of money from his from his his parents, basically, or from his father. So this gives us a really good example. The final thing that this gives us an example of is remember the concept of fortune houses, where because the lot of fortune is in Libra. 
in fortune houses, that becomes the first house. And then we count one of the things you do when you're analyzing the lot of fortune and its ruler is to see what house relative to the lot of fortune the ruler is located in. So if we count around signs from Libra, Libra is the first house, Scorpio is second, Sagittarius is third, all the way around until we come to Venus and Leo, we see that Venus is actually in the 11th sign relative to the lot of fortune or the 11th whole sign house from fortune, which remember is called the place of acquisition. And Valens emphasizes over and over again that the place of acquisition, if it's well situated with benefics there, um, can indicate the native having major financial windfalls and being very successful from a financial and material standpoint. Yeah, it's almost as if their uh, situation in life becomes elevated and raised up as a result of that. So again, a very, yeah, very distinguished eminent chart that we see just really benefiting the native. Right. So this is really interesting because it's like you can see some of that just with the houses of having the ruler of the fourth in the second would indicate that there's some connection between parents and finances potentially. But it's when you start layering on the fact that the lot of fortune is in the fourth house and that Venus is the ruler of the lot of fortune that you start seeing that there's something extraordinary circumstance-wise that's standing out here about the person's life. And you start fleshing out the actual detail of this being a striking you know, part of this person's life. Yeah. And most people aren't going to have circumstances like this. Most people are going to have conditions that are both positive and negative and give them almost a middling fortune, so to speak, rather than something that's just incredibly lucrative and positive for them. So yeah, there's different ways that this can play out, but this is certainly a great example of how when things are configured in this way, it's going to lead to the individual being incredibly fortunate and, you know, having quite a bit of privilege in their life. Yeah, and that actually brings up another point, though, which is that this one is a little bit mixed um, and provides a good example of that because Venus at 18 degrees of Leo is squaring Mars at 15 degrees of Scorpio, which is not the worst square because it's a night chart, um, but it is a square with the malefic. And then Venus, even though the ancient astrologers didn't use the outer planets, is also conjunct Pluto. And so it's, it's tying into this Mars-Pluto square in the person's chart. And what ended up happening is he like inherited his father's fortune. He was wildly wealthy, but he ended up um, divorcing his wife. And his wife got mad at him and hired a hitman who ended up like murdering this guy um, as a result of that, and partially due to the financial things surrounding it. So that's one of the reasons why you have to pay attention to good indications, which can indicate good things. But sometimes if there's also bad or negative or challenging indications, it can also indicate that there will be challenging things surrounding that at some point as well. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to look at the ruler of the lot too, because if you're just looking at the lot itself, the lot itself is averse to both malefics, but Venus has that square. So you're still going to get those challenging situations. You've got to kind of take in to consideration both pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. Yeah. So this is the guy, there was a movie that came out just a couple of yeah. years ago called House of Gucci, where um, Adam Driver played Maurizio Gucci, the owner of this birth chart. And then Lady Gaga played um, his the wife that ended up hiring the hitman, basically. Yeah, yeah, that was a interesting movie. I think there was a lot of contention with uh, Lady Gaga and the the woman that she was not happy about the portrayal or something. Oh, like really? That. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's funny because I've been using this birth chart for like 10 years as an example because it's such a good example. But so I was super stoked when the movie came out, but I actually haven't watched the full movie. So that's funny if she didn't uh, like I read the biography it was based on. Um, yeah. So that's funny. Yeah. All right. So um, that is our first example that shows the place of acquisition. I have one other really good place of acquisition example I want to show to just build on this point, and then I want to hear your your first example. Um, so a few months ago, this, you know, who's the current wealthiest person in the world? Uh, I don't know. It's between one of the billionaires right bezos or musk or one of them these days yeah well i think it's still musk has been like the richest person in the world for the past few years due to tesla and spacex and all the other various ventures that he has going on and just a few months ago in like september i think um a famous biographer walter isaacson wrote and published a biography of musk that he'd been working on for a few years and in the um, biography, it actually had a birth time for Musk. So all of a sudden, we had a birth time. We could calculate a birth chart. It's a rounded time, but it's still approximately correct, giving him a 7.30 a.m. birth time, meaning he was born with mid-cancer rising, so the ascendant's pretty stable, and he was probably born a little bit after sunrise. So what's interesting about Elon Musk that I noticed immediately and one of the things I loved about this chart is first, um, when you look at this chart, it has cancer rising, the sun and mercury in cancer in the first whole sign house, and the moon in Virgo in the third house. And um, like Mars is in Aquarius in the eighth house, um, Jupiter's in Scorpio in the fifth, Saturn and Venus are in Gemini in the 12th. Um, look at the second house, like the second house is Leo, but it doesn't have any planets in it. The only thing it has in it is the south node. So one of the things when you first glance at this chart, just from a basic standard astrological perspective that's striking about it, or is the most striking initial impression you might have when you think about Elon Musk and the fact that he's the richest person in the world is the chart doesn't immediately stand out to you as like, this is the richest person in the world because there's not a lot going on in the second house. Even the ruler of the second house, which is the sun is up in cancer in the first house relatively decently placed, but it's still not otherwise standing out to you or like jumping out to you that this is an amazingly um, fortunate chart for second house matters of finances, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, if anything, you'd probably predict the opposite because the South Node is there, which tends to be almost like a, a draining energy at times or a lessening impact. And so if you were to just look at this and not look at the lot of fortune and the things that we're going to get into, yeah, you might predict something that's completely off base and say, oh, you probably struggle with finances or holding on to money, which is true in some respects. He likes to spend, right? Um, but he still has accumulated, obviously, a massive amount of wealth in his lifetime. Yeah, it's like he's become the richest person in the world. So it's like, where is that in the chart? Well, the answer, my friends, is the lot of fortune, which we find in the sign of Virgo in the third whole sign house, which in and of itself is actually kind of interesting in terms of his work with Tesla and how he he, he basically came in and took over a pre-existing company for um, Tesla that was already there. Um, and which is interesting in terms of the third house, but 
that's not important right now for our purposes. What's important is we look at the lot of fortune. It's there in Virgo. And then if we calculate the houses from the lot of fortune, Virgo being the first house, Libra the second, Scorpio the third, all the way around until we find the 11th house and the ruler of the lot of fortune, we find Mercury, the ruler of the lot of fortune, is in Cancer conjunct the degree of the ascendant. And it's in the 11th whole sign house relative to the lot of fortune. So it's in the place of acquisition. Um, so moreover, it's not just in the place of acquisition, but it's actually in a mutual reception with um, its ruler, which is the moon, which rules cancer, which is placed in Virgo in the sign of the lot of fortune and conjunct the lot of fortune. And the moon is actually at eight degrees of Virgo and it's applying pretty closely to a sextile with Mercury at 14 degrees of Cancer. So what we see here is not only that the ruler of the lot of fortune is in the place of acquisition, but it's actually very strongly placed because of the mutual reception between um, the place of acquisition and the sign of the lot of fortune itself. And that right there um, is very similar then to the chart we just looked at with Gucci uh, and essentially that right there is where um, Elon Musk becoming like the richest person in the world is coming from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you want to take it one step further, you might think, well, Mercury doesn't have a lot of dignity in Cancer, but Mercury is kind of in that sweet spot where it's in the first house where it rejoices. It's in its own term and it's in its own face. The moon is also in the house where she rejoices. So they're both you know, in places where they're very comfortable, very capable of producing their significations, and they're both lifting each other up through that mutual reception. So, you know, sometimes we don't pay attention to those minor dignities, but when you start looking at them in charts like this, you can see how they really stack up and how they really can create conditions that really benefit an individual. Sure. Yeah. And also, I mean, Mercury at 14 degrees of Cancer, it has a very nice trine with Jupiter, which is at 27 degrees of Scorpio in a day chart where Jupiter is the most positive planet. So it, it has that very nice configuration with a benefic, and um, it's in aversion to both of the malefics because Mercury doesn't have a major aspect from Mars, especially, which is good because it's a day chart and it doesn't have a major aspect from Saturn, which it's also an aversion to. So it fits yep. a bunch of our conditions of what we were looking at earlier when you're going through our list of like good and bad things, specifically for the lot of fortune. And, you know, it's probably partially also relevant in terms of, um, you know, that um, some of Musk's initial circumstances was that he had some um, money coming into life from family influences, which gave him some advantage in order to be able to eventually start some of these companies. Yeah, definitely a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. So that's an example I want to use because that's an example of one other major piece of lots, and especially fortune and spirit that's very important is sometimes they can show you hidden things in the chart that you wouldn't see otherwise or that you would miss if you weren't calculating the lots um, because they are essentially these hidden points in the chart because lots are not visible bodies. They're mathematical points in a chart, but they're not things that you can like look up in the sky and see, which is additionally kind of interesting in terms of the, the notion of like diamonds and stuff like that because diamonds are 
these supposedly like indivisible spirits that are the intermediaries between the celestial and terrestrial realm. And if you think about lots, um, you know, there's several major lots, and that means there's these invisible points that are like floating around the top and bottom half of the chart, all over your chart at all times. And in the same way that in the ancient world, they had this conceptualization that there are these like spirits, these good and bad spirits that are floating around the world doing different things um, at different times as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, so that's my first example. First, first two examples. Um, what do you, what do you have? What, what's one of your favorite examples? Um, I really like Marie Antoinette or Frida Kahlo. I think both of them have really pronounced uh, a lot of fortune stuff going on, especially uh, Frida Kahlo has some interesting stuff when we're doing timing techniques as well. So maybe that's a good one to look at. All right. Let me pull up Frida's chart. All right. So here's Frida Kahlo's chart and it has Leo rising for the audio listeners, and a lot of fortune is in Cancer in this chart in the twelfth house. Yeah, and so we see just on that baseline circumstance, there's going to be things that impact her that keep her in those twelfth house places, right? Which can be a bit more isolated. And one of the things that happened to Frida throughout her life was that she dealt with several different accidents. She got polio, um, and she was bedridden for months, and so. Her lot of fortune is opposing Mars and Capricorn, which is retrograde, actually. So it's applying to the lot. So we see a severe affliction to her lot of fortune and also to her son, to her satellite. So it's almost like we get a double signification of that really coming through strongly. And Uranus is also conjunct Mars. So it comes through in almost like these freak accidents. And um, she did say that part of the reason that she began painting was because she was bedridden and she couldn't do anything else. And the ruler of the lot of fortune is then in the 10th house, also in the place of acquisition. So we see how some of these material circumstances that were very negative and very harmful to her health-wise actually ended up being a catalyst for her to take action and become a professional artist. And the moon is exalted in Taurus. So she was elevated as a result, even if it came about through really challenging circumstances. And um, I think in both cases of her accident and when she got polio, if you're doing perfections from the lot of fortune, she was in the sixth house year both times, which would have activated that Mars um, fortune opposition directly. Okay. So um, for the audio listeners, it's like we have Leo rising and the sun is in Cancer along with Jupiter, Neptune, the North Node, and the Lot of Fortune. So she has like a stacked 12th house already, like just to begin with. Yeah. But then when we see the Lot of Fortune there in the 12th house, um, that's in terms of difficult houses, that's one of the more difficult placements. If we were just starting from our initial starting point of of where is the lot of fortune located, it's falling in the twelfth house, which is in ancient astrology, the twelfth is associated with chronic um, illnesses or ailments. And as you said, um, she struggled with due to injuries, she struggled with um, chronic health issues for most of her life. Yeah really unfortunate circumstances that affected both her mental and physical health. And 
we can see that really showing up through, you know, the lot of fortune being in the 12th house. And even with Jupiter there, who is exalted, who we might think is going to really protect this lot, we see that affliction from Mars and the opposition there being a little bit more pronounced in her experience of those topics. Sure. So the 12th is like chronic in chronic health issues, chronic ailments. And then the sixth house where we find Mars in Capricorn conjunct Uranus in the south node, the sixth in ancient astrology was the house of injury. And what ended up happening um, with Mars, Uranus opposing her lot of fortune in the 12th, sixth house axis is that one day she was riding on a bus and there was this freak accident where um, there was a crash that happened and then she she was basically like like impaled i think right yeah 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 so and then as a result of that she survived but she suffered with like major um health issues for the rest of her life and like and pain and things like that and also being as you said like bedridden for a very long stints as a result of this um essentially this freak accident or or this sudden event of of misfortune yeah so you know uranus being that planet of unexpected kind of shocks and things that were not that can be very destabilizing and so having that be next to mars which is the most difficult planet in this chart which can often indicate things that are a bit more violent or challenging in nature especially for a day chart opposing that lot of fortune we see this kind of manifesting as like you said a freak accident that then brings her into the 12th house space of you know isolation and solitude and you know um ancient texts would say like exile and things like that and when you are bedridden for months um you know it can certainly feel that way like you've been kind of taken out from society and placed in to a situation that is very difficult to deal with both mentally and physically and then she began to paint as a result and her moon is ruling that lot of fortune it's in the place of acquisition in the 10th house so we see how that circumstance also just it led her to the career that she ended up having as well yeah i think that's really important because it's like uh, the 12th house is also the place associated with prisons um, mm -hmm. as well as hospitals for that matter but the notion of being stuck somewhere and sort of being imprisoned um, and she was stuck in bed for very large portions as a result of the illnesses and injury um, so but a lot of fortune being there it's not just like the mars uranus conjunction which as astrologers we associate with like sudden accidents but it's also fortune being there is bringing in this element of chance and luck and what happens sometimes if fortune is poorly placed is it can be the opposite of luck it can be being tremendously like unlucky in some specific area or having uh, an, an event of like misfortune befall a person through no fault of their own it's like she wasn't she was just riding a bus and all of a sudden this freak accident happens and then causes this major life-changing and ultimately characteristic it's one of the things that she becomes the most known for mm -hmm. partially through that um as that event happening and how it affected and then rippled through the rest of her life but then the good part of this is that even though the lot of fortune itself is poorly placed the ruler of the lot of fortune 
since the lot of fortune is in Cancer is the moon, and the moon is in the 10th house, conjunct the degree of the midheaven in the sign of its exaltation. And exaltation in ancient astrology is always um, associated with things that are raised up to a high point or coming to the, the top of something, and that's why it's called exaltation. And because it's in the 10th house, it relates to her career. And because it's in Taurus, it relates to Venus and the arts. And she ended up becoming um, a famous artist that is still is one of the most recognized artists around the world today um, with that ruler with a lot of fortune in the 10th house in the sign of exaltation. And it's also in the place of acquisition, the 11th house from fortune, so that she also um, eventually became successful in her art as well in terms of that helping to sustain her. Yeah, exactly. And even some of the things that she would paint or create about were very dark, you know, very 12th housey in nature that just weren't, um, and she was known for that. She didn't shy away from depicting really challenging circumstances, especially things that did relate to her body, which is another um, thing that we see with a lot of fortune. And so one of her most famous paintings, I think, is is about a miscarriage. And so we see like, she's not you know, she's not shying away from those themes in her art. And I think that the lot of fortune there is also speaking to her reckoning with some of that. And then the exaltation of the moon ruling that in the 10th house shows that we're bringing that experience into almost like the public sphere where a lot of people are going to recognize this and see this, but that it is ultimately the thing that brings her into a place of elevation or exaltation. Right. That's such an amazing combination of taking her her pain and her hardships and like transmuting that through her art and then becoming known for for that through her artwork um, all around the world that's such a amazing manifestation of having a mixture of really difficult and really positive placements and how that can work out as well as sometimes one of the things that Valens in the anthology when he's delineating lots emphasizes a lot sometimes is, the position of the lot indicating the circumstances in the first part of the matter, especially early in the life, but then the condition of the ruler indicating things later on. Um, and I think to some extent, you know, the notion of her becoming a famous artist later in her life is is part of what that's indicating. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is worth mentioning that I do believe she took her own life. So we see that self-undoing theme of the 12th house kind of coming alive there too. So I'm not sure it did she? Totally work. Yeah, I believe so. Okay, I thought she died of due to the long like complications with some of her health stuff later on because she was like bedridden at the end. Oh, I could be mistaken, but I I thought she um took her own life, but I might be wrong on that. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure. Um, we'll have to check that out. But yeah, um, yeah. So that's a really um stunning and striking example. Were there any other points about that that you had? No, I think that was kind of the main one of just looking at how, you know, certain things can be really challenging, but they can also lead to circumstances that do end up being a bit more positive in nature as well. It's a good mixture um, example, I think. Okay, nice. Good. That's a really good example and then ties in with some of our previous things. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, 
which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 to get a 15% discount. All right, so we're back. Um, I just Googled it and I saw, I was actually surprised I didn't know that there are, because um, the official cause on the birth or death certificate was a pulmonary an embolism, basically. Um, but I didn't realize that there's been recent work done with biographers who uh, one did does suspect that there's a theory that it was a suicide and another um, theory that it was like an accidental overdose. So it looks like there's a little bit of nebulousness or um, mystery surrounding how Frida died. Yeah, I think does she has she has Neptune conjunct a lot of fortune, doesn't she? That is good point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so fortune is um, at nine cancer and Neptune's at 12. There you go. So some confusion surrounding, you know, matters related to health. And that makes uh, a lot of sense. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, uh, it was really funny. I just tried to ask one of the AIs, but the AIs, when you um, ask them, are they've been suddenly programmed not to answer questions like that. So I asked, how did Frida Kahlo die? And it said, I'm just a language model, so I can't help you with that. Um, <laughs> so they they like actively dissuade you from like trying to research certain topics, which is really interesting and a little a little scary. unsettling. Mm -hmm. a little unsettling. Yeah, a little I, scary. Because I mean, I guess I understand the opposite, which is maybe they're not wanting it to be used for bad or morbid things. But if like, it's interesting that we're entering into this age of like the AIs potentially as they become the new search engines. Some of these companies having. A lot of control then about like what information is like permissible or not permissible and as pluto's moving into aquarius here in the next few days uh that's something i'm very interested in to see how that's going to go yeah a little scary that they can withhold that information if that becomes the prim primary source of where we go to access things it's a little frightening to consider the ramifications of that long term but i guess we got 20 years to see how that pans out yeah, exactly. And actually, speaking of that, I meant to give the data for this episode of when we recorded it, because I didn't at the beginning. So we recorded this episode on Thursday, January 8th, 2024. And we started um, with like late Pisces rising to catch an electional chart today. Yeah, January 18th. Okay, January 18th. What did I say? 8th, I think. Oh, no. Thank you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> January 18th, 2024, late Pisces rising um, here in Denver, Colorado, sometime after, like, what was it, like 8.30 in the morning, 9.30 in the morning? Yeah, I think around 9.30 in the morning for you, okay. maybe a little bit after, yeah. Yeah, that was it. All right, cool. Let's get back to our example charts. Let's try to hammer out some more example charts so we can see and understand some different facets of the lots in in our remaining time here. Um, okay, you had another example, right? Yeah, Marie Antoinette, I think, is a, is a good one, or we have Princess Diana's as well, either one of those. Yeah, let's do Marie Antoinette, since I know you mentioned that one first. Cancer rising. Oh, it's Cancer and not... Not Gemini. Yeah, there's certain what um, what time? programs. I think with the corrected time, it's Cancer rising. And Astro.com, it's a AA rated chart with that one, but I think the like my Astro Gold uh, software has it with it's not corrected for the time difference or something like that. Oh yeah, you're right. That is what it. I think that's what it is. It's yeah. Okay, so it's two Cancer rising. Then does that sound right? 
Yeah, should be early, early cancer rising, like 730. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. So tell us about who this is, if our audience like doesn't know, and what the layout of the chart is for the audio people. Yeah. So Marie Antoinette was a royal figure around the time of the French Revolution. She's famous for having her head chopped off <laughs> um, and saying, let them eat cake. Those are maybe some things to spur your memory. She is a Cancer rising with Mars in Cancer in the first house, conjunct the Lot of Fortune, which is also in the first house. She has Saturn in Capricorn in the seventh house, which is opposing the Lot of Fortune within one degree. And then that Lot of Fortune is ruled by the Moon in Libra in the fourth house, which is co-present with Jupiter. So I think when we look at her chart, we see some really mixed testimony here. We see both the Lot of Fortune and the Ruler of Fortune in angular houses, which we know tends to be a sign of eminence or, you know, privilege or circumstance. And the Ruler of the Lot is also co-present with Jupiter. So there's a benefic kind of quality here. And she was, she was born into a royal family. She was married to, um, you know, uh, the King, King Louis, when she was very young, around like the age of 14, like very close to her Saturn opposition. So Saturn would have actually been pretty close to her natal lot of fortune around that time. And then she ended up as a result of her marriage, getting into a very difficult situation with the public and people were calling for her banishment and her exile and her execution. And she was eventually um, executed and guillotined uh, during the French, during the French revolution. Mm, okay. So yeah that's really interesting and really important so there's like the ruler of fortune is in the first and it's or the ruler of fortune is in the fourth um with a benefic and she was born into a sort of life of privilege and had fortune in the first house but then as a result of getting married to the king of france at the time when the french revolution just like happened to take place um both her and her husband ended up being beheaded. And I think it's really interesting with Fortune in the First, then that that Saturn in a night chart um, falls in like the seventh house opposite to that, as well as in the seventh house relative to Fortune. And it's like through her connection with the king is, is part of why what happened to her. Yeah, exactly. And that Saturn is very strong, right? It's in domicile in Capricorn. So it's very resourced and her husband was incredibly resourced, but he was ultimately the product of her downfall as well. And she was blamed for a lot of the spending in France and they said she had very extravagant taste and things like this, but it was really a result of him mismanaging money and funds. And so she was ultimately the one who, you know, along with him that got, um, you know, kind of yeah, guillotined as a result of that. And she also had, you know, some health things that were really difficult in her life, which makes a lot of sense with having Mars on one side of the lot of fortune and Saturn opposing the other. She had some really difficult childbirths. And um, one of her childbirths was also um, in public. Like she had to give birth in front of a crowd of people. And apparently um, everybody rushing into the room almost killed her because it sucked all of the air out of the room which is really interesting to consider when uh, you know that Mars is the ruler of the fifth house of children as well. So we see the kind of significations of difficult childbirths coming um, and public childbirths as well with that being in the first house and Mars ruling the fifth and the 10th. That's really cool. Well, it's really interesting ruling the fifth <laughs> and the 10th and being the first. 
Yeah, maybe say, not cool. <laughs> whenever I say a chart's like really amazing or really cool, and I'm talking about a chart that's really morbid, understand that I I mean <laughs> that's interesting as an astrologer abstractly, theoretically. Yeah, it's a remarkable, you know, depiction of the astrology. It's certainly not a good thing that happened to her. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting you said about her husband mismanaging funds and that being part of it as well, because um, Saturn is not just in the seventh and ruling the seventh house of of marriage, but it's also with Aquarius on the eighth house. It's ruling the eighth house of shared resources and the partner's finances as well. So it's interesting how those topics are tied together there. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when the for when fortune is in the first house, it can kind of feel like, oh, well, then the fortune houses don't matter. But oftentimes what it does is it adds almost this double down effect where the houses become that much more important because we aren't importing additional significations in like we are with so many other charts. And so you can see how first house things and a lot of fortune things are really difficult for her as are, you know, the seventh house things as well. And her and her husband didn't even get along. You know, she ended up living in her own house, like at Versailles, completely apart from him. So they also didn't have like a good loving relationship and Saturn being that malefic contrary to sect is really pronounced here. Yeah. And it, well, it's funny you mentioned Versailles and just like, that's such a funny image here of like the ruler of the ascendant and the ruler of fortune being in the fourth house with Jupiter and then ruled by like Venus in a night chart and just like you know, the most extravagant like living situation you could possibly have. Yeah, just sheer opulence, you know, and that's why I find her chart so interesting because we really see how she had certain circumstances, certain privileges that most people could never even begin to imagine. Like she didn't want for anything, but she did struggle with health. She did struggle with childbirth. She did struggle with her husband. And so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where some people might not even realize how fortunate or you know fortunate they are in certain areas of life. Um, like she probably can't imagine being poor until the very very end when she was you know in jail, and then you know but she probably also couldn't imagine having like a very loving husband either. So we see both kind of those elements of fortune and misfortune coming alive in her chart, and especially with the ways that they interact with her lot of fortune in particular. Yeah, and and the thing that's actually the most difficult and and is the killer, um, in a bad way, thing about the placement here when it comes to fortune is that the moon is ruling fortune. There are a lot of fortune, and it's at twenty degrees of Libra, so it's relatively well placed by sign, house, and um, configuration with Jupiter with a benefic but it's at 20 degrees of Libra and it's applying within three degrees to a square with Saturn in a night chart. And that is a condition of maltreatment. And that's where you get health matters as well as um, issues of of misfortune ultimately, and um, even potentially a, a difficult um, end of life with that placement, um, which I've seen in some some other examples as well, that sometimes some of the famous celebrity examples where there's been a a really rough end of the life um, in terms of how it came about been when the ruler of fortune is being maltreated, uh, especially by applying to a close degree-based aspect with the malefic contrary to the sect, which is Saturn in a night chart or Mars in a day chart. Yeah. And then just to make this one even worse, it's actually being besieged by the malefics because the last um, application would have been the square to Mars and the next one is the square to Saturn. So oh, she's nice. really getting it on both sides here. <laughs> Good times. 
Um, yeah, maybe not for her. And then if we want to throw in another lot that we haven't been able to talk about much, she also has the lot of Nemesis, which is Saturn's lot on the descendant as well, or conjunct the descendant within just a few degrees. So we can see those themes of, you know, banishment and exile and Saturnian feelings of loss and diminishment also happening in the house of marriage and partnership. Yeah, and I don't have it in the chart, but in my solar fire chart page file, my custom one that I created, I created a section for the hermetic lots. And you can find Nemesis, which is Saturn's lot, is the last one mentioned or last one listed. And um, we see here that it's at four degrees of Capricorn in her, in her chart. So it's like right here, as you said, right on the descendant. So one of the most difficult lots, the lot associated with Saturn is right on the descendant. Yeah, exactly. And those challenges just really coming about as a result of that relationship with her husband, which I'm noticing you have here that the lot of exaltation is also in the seventh house. And she was exalted as a result of that marriage, right? Like she became the queen of France. And then ultimately that still led to extremely challenging circumstances and her eventual death. Right. That's so important because it's giving you know, it's showing other scenarios where sometimes um, through this and through the use of lots, you can see eminence or you can see fortunate circumstances where either a person is very fortunate or is raised up in some instances to eminence, which especially is what the lot of exaltation does from Valens, uh, but as well fortune to some extent. Um, but you can also see when the planet is afflicted or when there's negative things going on, that there can be a reversal or a downfall of some sort that's particularly unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that is a really good example. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. It's one of my favorites in a very morbid way. <laughs> right. Uh, I am not one to shy away from morbid examples. I don't know if you've heard. I think you've been through my course. I think you're aware of my yeah, back, a little go bit. back and forth. I try to get all the extremes as well as all the shades of gray in between, but that's to defend both of our morbid examples. It's like it's by looking at the most extreme examples that you can identify the full spectrum because you need to know what's on the opposite end of the spectrum on both sides of extreme cases of good and of fortune, of good fortune, and you need to know what the extreme scenarios are in the extreme cases of misfortune, because once you've established the extremities of the spectrum, then you can start to fill in the blanks in between, which is identifying all the shades of gray on the spectrum in between. Yeah. And most people are going to have in between. And we even see some of that in between showing up in these extremes. But sometimes you need those ones that are really going to show you a worst case scenario or a best case scenario. So you know kind of where those, um, yeah, where those extremes land. Exactly. And, and it's like sometimes getting conflicting indications can indicate both like scenarios of extreme fortune and extreme misfortune at different points in the life. In other instances, it can um, balance things out or moderate things so that like a, it moderates a good fortune or it moderates a bad fortune. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even thinking about that Marie Antoinette example and her a lot of fortune being ruled or being in cancer ruled by the moon, which is known for those fluctuations, right? The moon is constantly waxing and waning and it has kind of a you know, an ability to both give and take away. And so we see that really coming through in her opulent life and the extreme, you know, privilege that she had and also the incredibly difficult circumstances that she ran into later on. 
for sure. Yeah, that's a really great, great point. All right. Um, really quickly, I meant to show this image because I thought it was a good image and I might use it for like the cover of this episode. But um, I ordered some astro dice. You can get these dice that put like the symbols for the signs of the zodiac or the symbols of the planets or the symbols of the houses. And I got one of these cool little like crystal zodiac wheels to put it on. And this is like one of the images that I think is really useful when we're talking about lots to think about is kind of like, you know, in some instances you have like the super metaphysical version of like the, um, let's say the myth of Ur and it's like the souls are out there, you know, casting these lots and they're falling on a planet and then it falls in a sign and it falls in a house. And that's kind of what you're getting with the birth chart and what you're getting with the lots is that the lots are, and I think that's part of what the calculations for the lots are meant to mimic is this notion of like casting dice and then they fall somewhere that seems somewhat random, but it's actually uh, deliberate and, and sort of like under the guidance of fate, it falls in a certain place. But once you've cast the lot and you get the placement, then you get that outcome and the sort of like fate that comes with it. Yeah, I was laughing because I literally have my my own astro dice right here. <laughs> nice. And, you know, they're a great they're a great divination divination tool. So if you have a question, you ask the astro dice, and you kind of engage in your own casting of the lots, and you know, uh, yeah, get your divine will and your answer, and you interpret from there. Yeah, it's also good as a teaching tool to just like cast them and then test yourself by then once you get a placement because it'll give you like a planet in a sign in a house. And then to try to delineate, uh, to give to generate a delineation and say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean when Mars is in um, Leo in the tenth house or something like that? And to produce a delineation, it's really good as a as a student to to do that as sort of not just a test, but as a as a nice like strengthening tool. It's like the astrologer's version of like lifting weights. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. That's a great learning tool for people. I love Asher Dice, so I can't recommend them enough. And for that, um, you know, specific use, I think that's a really great idea. For sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so back to our examples. Let me take a glance at what other examples I wanted to do. Oh, yeah, I had one really good one. Okay. I want to do this one because it was a good um, example of fortune. So this is the chart, a uh, recent one, of Queen Elizabeth II, who was the Queen of England who died. I think it was, was it just, I guess it was two years ago now? Yeah, feels pretty um, recent still. Right, in 2022. Um, so, you know, by the end of her life, she lived to be almost 100 years, and she became, I think, like the longest reigning monarch in history or or close to it, if not the longest reigning monarch. Um, so what's interesting about her chart, though, is looking at her chart for the audio listeners, she, has Capricorn, she had Capricorn rising, and a lot of fortune is in Libra in the 10th house of career, and it's ruled by Venus, which is located in Pisces, where it's in the sign of its exaltation, in the third house of extended relatives, 
and it's also in a night chart. So it's um, the most positive planet in the chart, ruling the lot of fortune in the third house of relatives of extended family. And the thing that's interesting about Queen Elizabeth is that she wasn't supposed to be um, really in the direct line of succession. It was her uncle who was king. And but what ended up happening is through this weird chance set of circumstances, her uncle, the king, fell in love with like a commoner or somebody that was not a royal, and he wanted to marry her. But the only way to do that is he would have to renounce the kingship. Um, so that's what he ended up doing. And as a result of suddenly, somewhat suddenly renouncing the kingship, all of a sudden the line of succession switched to um, his brother, who was Queen Elizabeth's uh, father, and he ruled for a period of time. And then eventually he died not super long afterwards. And then Elizabeth became queen and then became the longest reigning monarch in history. But it only happened as a result of this weird set of chance events involving her uncle. And aunts and uncles are actually signified by the third house. So the lot of fortune is in the 10th, showing in this instance, ultimately her career and, and destiny and, and ru rulership. Um, but it coming from the lot of fortune in the sign of its exaltation, where Venus is raised up to the highest point, um, but it's in the place of extended relatives and uncles, and she gained the the queenship just as a result of that chance or fortune-like circumstance. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I'm also noticing that her lot of spirit is in the fifth house in Taurus, also ruled by that exalted Venus. So she has both the lot of fortune and the lot of spirit being ruled by the most positive planet in her chart, which is exalted. And I find it kind of interesting that as the monarch, one of your primary duties or things to do is to produce an heir. And so we see that kind of uh, notion of like what she had to do, you know, is is have a child as well to continue the the monarchy. Right. And Charles actually has Taurus placements and yeah, Taurus is her fifth house. Um, interestingly, the lot of exaltation, um, which I forgot to mention, yeah, but the lot of exaltation is also in Libra. It's in the 10th house. So it's further emphasizing that Venus placement. Um, and there's just a lot of different, different stuff going on here. Interestingly, there was a Taurus eclipse when, um, you know, Charles had his coronation last year, yeah. which would have been in her fifth house, basically when her child like became king and succeeded her. Yeah, it's so interesting how sometimes charts can still speak to what's happening after the fact, even after someone has passed away. Yeah, exactly. That's um, I actually think I have an example of that at some point. So that was one positive example. I have another one that's a similar thing where there's this theme of like the chance like things that happen that shape our destiny um, that I think I'll share really quickly unless you have one like that. No, go ahead. Okay. This is the birth chart of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Do you know, are you familiar with his story? I'm not, no, but excited to hear it. <laughs> All right, so um, 
me let me first I'll explain the chart itself. So um Ruben Hurricane Carter, he has he had Leo rising and a lot of fortune is in Gemini in the 11th whole sign house. And the ruler of the lot of fortune is Mercury, which is retrograde in the 10th house. So um, let's see other things. Mars is in Sagittarius and it's retrograde and it's opposing the sign of the lot of fortune, which is not good. And also Mercury being the ruler of the lot of fortune and being retrograde and also under the beams of the sun because the sun is at 15 um, Taurus and Mercury is at 22 Taurus. So Mercury has just retrograded under the beams of the sun and has disappeared so that it's no longer visible. So one of the other things that's interesting is relative to fortune houses, that means that the lot of fortune is in Gemini, which is like a good house, but with the ruler of the lot of fortune, even though it's in the 10th house from the natal houses from the ascendant, the ruler of the lot of fortune, Mercury and Taurus is in the 12th house relative to the lot of fortune itself. Um, so he doesn't otherwise natally have a super prominent 12th house. He just has Pluto there, but in the fortune houses, for some reason, um, it's putting the ruler of the lot of fortune in the 12th house relative to fortune. So basically what happened is that he was a he was like a boxer, but he was out one night with a friend or with a couple of friends, and there was a murder that happened where three people were killed um, in the same city as him. And what ended up happening is he was falsely convicted of these murders, and along with his friend, he was sentenced to I think two lifetimes in prison, basically. Wow. So he was sentenced to a major, he was falsely convicted of murder and sentenced to prison with his friend. So this is one of the places where, um, again, it's showing us something that we might not see or we might have trouble seeing or might overlook otherwise, which is like the 12th house is not majorly prominent in the chart in terms of having a lot of placements there and him spending um, almost his whole lifetime in prison. He was in prison for over two decades before eventually through um, publicity about his case. Like there was a famous song that was written in the, uh, the 60s by like Bob Dylan about him that helped to publicize that he was wrongly convicted based on false testimony as well as due to racism from the, the police, um, but also through his own efforts to get out, um, he eventually was successful and was exonerated after two over two decades in prison. Um, and that's coming from, so, you know, it's interesting is it's fortune here and it's fortune-like circumstances where he was just like in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he didn't do anything that caused that, but because of those circumstances outside of his control, he got swept up into something and he got thrown into prison, which is the lot of fortune, the ruler of the lot of fortune being in the 12th house uh, relative to fortune and also being retrograde and under the beams.
So that's part of what's being shown here. Additionally, because though the ruler of the lot of fortune is in the 10th house, his case was publicized and came to the attention of a lot of people, like for example, through that Bob Dylan song, as well as other people who um, were like activists to try to help get him freed because it was clear that he was wrongfully convicted. So eventually he was freed. And it's kind of interesting because he has Jupiter at 27 degrees of Capricorn um, and it's trining that Mercury in Taurus. And eventually he was freed and he ended up um, then after he got out of prison and also his friend who was wrongfully convicted at the same time was also freed at the same time. And I think it's interesting that the Lot of Fortune is in the 11th house. And that's the other thing I'm trying to emphasize here is the Lot of Fortune and its ruler, the houses that they're located in are both relevant in mm -hmm. the 11th house of friends and the 10th house of career and publicity and reputation, but also the fortune houses are relevant here as well because Mercury's in the 12th house from the Lot of fortune. So we're seeing a, an overlap and a doubling up of significations that are relevant in his life as a result of the overlap of the normal houses and the fortune houses. So the final thing that's relevant about his story and how it ends on kind of a good note is that um, in 1985, after nearly two decades in prison, a federal judge overturned his conviction based on prosecutorial misconduct and racism in the original trial. Him and his friend are finally released. And then Carter dedicated the rest of his life to advocating for the wrongly convicted and raising awareness of racial injustice in the justice system. He co-founded the Innocence Project, which is an organization dedicated to exonerating the wrong, wrongfully imprisoned. So, and I think this is partially due to that trine from Jupiter and sometimes the ruler indicating things that happen later on. And I think it's also partially also relevant here that his lot of spirit is in Libra and it's ruled by Venus, which is up in the ninth house which often has to do with um, the courts and the legal system and things like that. Yeah, that's a great example. And just thinking about how that fortune is really showing those constraining circumstances, but what he did with it when he had a bit of agency and he was released from prison was the lot of spirit and that being you know ruled by a benefic planet, which is also 11th from fortune. So we see almost like an elevation in that place of acquisition or accomplishment there with him being able to do really profound work with really difficult topics, which I think Venus and Aries is very good at doing, you know, bringing care onto a battlefield, so to speak. And he was able to then, you know, spread that word and and uh, help a lot of people, hopefully. So yeah, that's an incredible example. Yeah. And the last thing I want to mention is, so Valens mentions and uses the lot of exaltation, and he uses it sometimes as an eminence indicator if the ruler of the lot of exaltation is in the 10th house relative to the lot of fortune. And so what's interesting is the lot of exaltation in his chart, it's in Cancer in the 12th house natally. Um, and then the ruler is the moon, which is in Pisces, which is the 10th house relative to the lot of fortune. And he became known as a result of being falsely imprisoned, basically. 
and became eminent as a result of that. But then also after he got out, became eminent and his life's work ended up becoming, you know, working to free other people that were wrongly imprisoned as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So that is my, one of those, because through these we're seeing, um, this theme sometimes of circumstances that are outside of a person's control of like chance or fortune that are shaping in very important ways their fate and their destiny um with all these examples that we've seen so far and sometimes fortune can be something that's positive and indicates positive acts of fortune that occur but other times it can be acts of misfortune that befall the native as well at the same time yeah, yeah, like we're seeing and there's so many different things you have to take into consideration when you are figuring out whether that person's going to be, you know, more on the fortunate side or more on the misfortunate side. And so I think a lot of times the lot of fortune gets conflated with this idea of luck, and it can be luck, but it can also be the opposite of luck as well. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it entirely really depends on just how um how the planets are positioned in the chart, how fortune and how its ruler are positioned in the chart. Yeah, exactly. We keep seeing that time and time again, which is why it's such a useful technique. Because I think as we've demonstrated so far, sometimes you just can't see that in other ways. That last example was a really good one for that, where you know you might look at a 10th house stellium and say, oh, this person's you know, going to have like a high-powered career. They're going to be really visible, but not understanding the circumstances of their fate that led them to those situations, which were actually incredibly difficult circumstances, right? Some of the worst that a person can go through. So, you know, you might not be considering that if you're not looking at the lot of fortune. Right, exactly. Um, okay, so do you have... Oh, yeah. And I meant to mention the calculation for the lot of exaltation. It's given in Valens in book two, um, where he says, measure the distance in a day chart from the sun to Aries, which is the sign in which the sun is exalted, and then measure out the same distance from the ascendant. Or for a night chart, measure the distance from the moon to Taurus, which is the sign of the exaltation of the moon, and then measure the same distance from the ascendant. So if anyone wants to calculate that in your chart, that's how you do it? Yep. All right. Um, do you have other other examples, any other major ones that are ones you liked that stood out to you that you wanted to make sure we got in? Um, I think we covered almost all of them. We could maybe do Princess Diana if you want, but I think we saw it's a very similar situation where she has um, the ruler of fortune, 12th from fortune. And we just kind of looked at an example like that. So if you want to show another one, otherwise I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. I have like, I have some depressing ones. Like I have like Sharon Tate who had really bad fortune, like circumstances in a way that similarly, like actually is very striking, um, but might be kind of depressing. Uh, I have an eminent one that shows some eminence techniques, and maybe that would be worth showing because um, it ties in some of the things. Actually, I have two like that. Let me do both of these really quickly. Okay. All right. So this is the chart of um, Emperor Hirohito, who was the emperor of Japan during World War II. 
So um, one of the things about his chart, one of the um, Valens uses the lots of especially fortune, spirit, and exaltation partially as an eminence technique to determine people who are either very eminent or who are not eminent. And sometimes part of the thing that comes along with that is the notion of like being raised up and being prominent in life, just like a luminary, like the lights are prominent in the sky and it's hard not to notice them or hard not to have your attention sort of um, pulled towards like a luminary, a striking luminary in the sky, like the full moon, let's say at night. Um, but also to the extent that sometimes eminence also reflects material fortunes or can so that sometimes those who are more eminent are also those that are more materially fortunate. So um, one of the eminence indicators is to have the ruler of the lot of fortune in the 10th place from the lot of fortune itself. So this is one example of that, where we have an example of a emperor um, who has Sagittarius rising and the lot of fortune is in Leo in the ninth whole sign house, and the ruler of the lot of fortune is the sun, and the sun is in Taurus. So the sun in Taurus is actually in the 10th house relative to the lot of fortune, which is similar in some ways to having like the ruler of the ascendant in the 10th house of the chart, because it shows a major focus on like um, career, on um, essentially rulership or being in a position of power and other 10th house things like that. So um, other eminence indicators that Valence gives is when the ruler of the lot of spirit is in the 10th house relative to the lot of fortune, which we also see in this chart in a pretty spectacular way because he was born with the lot of spirit in Taurus at 10 degrees of Taurus. So its ruler is Venus and Venus is actually located there in the sign of Taurus, Kazemi with the sun which is conjunct within a degree at eight degrees of Taurus. And it's also a night chart. So Venus is actually of the sect in favor. It's the most positive planet in the chart. It's in the 10th house from fortune, which represents circumstances and power and reputation and prominence, but also the ruler of spirit that represents action and choice is there in the 10th house from fortune in a very powerful and positive position for him. Yeah. It might just be worth explaining what Kazemi is in case some of your listeners aren't familiar with that term. Just that um, a planet is Kazemi. In this instance, the planet Venus is Kazemi when it's conjunct the sun or Kazemi means in the heart, which derives from an Arabic term, which itself is a translation of a Greek term, which just means in the heart of the sun. And when a planet is under the beams within 15 degrees of the sun, it was hidden and usually seen as something that's more challenging or negative. But when a planet is exactly conjunct the sun within a degree, it was seen as a position of power. Yeah, it's a, an auspicious condition for sure. And in her own sign as well with us all being in Taurus. So kind of just adding to that Kazemi effect as well. Yeah. Um, also receiving a nice trine from Jupiter at 13 degrees of Capricorn. Yes, exactly. All right, so that's showing some of the stuff about indicate uh, eminence indicators and how lots can be used as eminence indicators for notable or even royal nativities. Um, 
One of the things, though, that's interesting is that a lot of fortune is in the ninth house, the place of foreign places and foreign travel with the planet Mars. And the ruler of the ninth house is in the sixth house, natally, which is usually seen as the place of injuries as well as enemies in ancient astrology. The sixth and twelfth were associated with enemies. So I thought it was interesting that in looking at this example, even though that's a position of in the fortune house is a place of power and eminence in his chart, it's interesting that the defining thing that Hirohito became known for, you know, in his life is essentially the the empire that he was under control of, Japan initiating a war with a foreign country, um, in this case with the U United States and Pearl Harbor, um, the attack on Pearl Harbor that that brought the United States into World War II and into a direct war in the Pacific with Japan. Um, and then ultimately, Hirohito lost um, the war, Japan lost the war, and succumbed to his enemy, essentially, which is the sixth house placement. Um, and then what ended up happening that's additionally interesting is that the enemy of Hirohito, let's say the sixth house, and the connection with the ninth house, like the enemy is a foreign place, um, forced Hirohito after World War II, after he lost the war, to renounce his divine status. Because prior to this time in Japan, the emperor was seen as a god. But one of the conditions that the United States had once they won World War II is they forced the emperor to renounce his own divinity. Um, but otherwise allowed him to stay somewhat in power. So in that way, after the war, Hirohito almost in some ways, there was a sort of like subordination to foreign rulers, which is tying together concepts of the sixth and ninth house, because the sixth was in ancient astrology, the place of subordinates, and the ninth house was the place of foreigners, foreign lands, and foreign travel. So there's something like extremely detailed going on here about some of the additional nuances of this, both indicating his eminence, but also indicating some of the challenges and the ultimate downfall in some sense, at least in terms of one of the most characteristic things that happened in his life that I often use his chart as an example for because his zodiac releasing periods um, for when he had to renounce his own divinity are actually amazing, but it's already kind of indicated here in some ways in the birth chart itself. Yeah, that's great. And if we're looking at fortune houses too, then Saturn, the malefic contrary to sect, which is retrograde, is actually in the sixth house from fortune. So we see that hidden enemy quality, and it also rules the seventh house from fortune, which is sometimes the house of open enemies. So we can see both of those things kind of tying in with you know, the enemy houses and how that is, you know, seen both from the, yeah, both like lenses of the fortune houses and the standard houses from the ascendant as well. Yeah, that brings up, I forgot to mention, the lot of exaltation is also in Leo. So it's like in the sign of fortune. And that means the ruler of exaltation is the sun, which is in the 10th from fortune, which is actually having the ruler of exaltation in the 10th from fortune is another eminence indicator that Valens mentions. Yeah, I think um, as well, he's got what, a lot of courage in the in Capricorn, uh, conjunct Jupiter and Saturn, and a lot of courage has to do with proclamations and declarations of war, I believe. Mm. 
So you can also see that you know those things are going to be afflicted by Saturn and the most challenging planet in that chart in Jupiter, whilst you know is there to add a bit of support is in fall isn't really capable of producing much um positives there for for him. Sure. Yeah. So it's like part of the purpose of this example, and one of the things that's interesting that we're getting to here with some of the lot doctrine is sometimes we have this picture in ancient astrology that like in let's say in popular culture that like ancient astrologers could predict fortune and like eminence or that that sometimes maybe you would go to an astrologer to find out if you're going to be famous someday or or um you know there's a famous legend about one of the early roman emperors going and getting his chart read and the and the astrologer saying that he would become very eminent someday and him eventually becoming emperor there's a couple of stories of that actually but um this is actually one of the concrete techniques that the ancient astrologers actually used to determine eminence was the lots and different combinations of the lot of fortune and spirit and exaltation and maybe one other lot the lot of bosses that we're not going into here um but this is this is it like this is to the extent if one ever had this conceptualization of astrology but this is one of the things that's been missing from astrology for a long time. And it's one of the reasons why, like in the 20th century, there was push this shift towards purely uh, psychological astrology, which in some ways was deliberate as a result of like humanism and a, a tendency to want to focus on humanistic astrology and the astrology of like, like the mind and the psyche and the soul. Um, but it was also partially maybe inadvertent in the sense that astrology lost or had forgotten some of the techniques that allowed us to predict things like eminence um, through some of these specific techniques, which is the, the use of lots. Yeah, absolutely. And even bringing in the timing piece, you can also see when certain things are going to happen, when someone will be elevated to a position of eminence or in Frida Kahlo's case, doing the perfections from you know, the lot of fortune you see when those accidents are going to occur. And so it's not only a powerful thing for delineation, but also for prediction of when these things are going to happen. So it's a very complex, rich technique. And yeah, I think it's something that hopefully will be in a lot more astrologers toolkits after this, uh, after this talk. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. I have so many other chart examples I could get into, a lot of amazing chart examples, but I know because we're almost at four hours here, minus the breaks, that we should start wrapping this up pretty soon. And I think we've actually demonstrated quite a bit here, even in the the relatively few number of chart examples we've gone through, at least relative to me and my um, you know, lectures like the 18-hour Zodiac releasing workshop that I teach in my course that just has dozens and dozens of, of examples. Um, so we did want to mention some other applications of lots because we've primarily focused here on natal placements of lots, which is the primary usage um, in ancient astrology, but they could also be used in other ways in a number of other applications. Um, one of them that you've mentioned and we've mentioned a few times already is zodiac releasing, for example, which is a complex time lord technique where um, it divides the native's life up into different chapters. And you usually start from either the lot of spirit or the lot of fortune. And you start from spirit if you want to study 
career and the natives actions and overall life direction or you start from a lot of fortune if you want to study circumstances and health and things like that and it can show very important turning points with respect to those topics as well as sometimes the intersection between the two um yeah so and that's a technique you've worked a lot with as well right yeah yeah i think i took your course and got really inspired it was one of the things that just grabbed me about astrology and hasn't really let me go since. So I've also got a lecture on zodiacal releasing on my site, and it's something that I use a lot in client consultations. And it's just really amazing to see how it can tell the story of someone's life and when they're going to, like I was saying kind of before, encounter circumstances that are going to be more difficult or more positive or periods of ease or greater difficulty, which can just be such a validating thing for some people to hear. I think sometimes that it's not you, you're not doing anything wrong. It's just you're in this malefic period that's going to last another couple months. And I think being able to give people an end date to some of those challenging circumstances is one of the most valuable functions of astrology that I've found so far. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I'm glad you're using it in consultations. Like Zodiac releasing was always one of the most rewarding things and techniques that I used in every consultation I did. Um, so people should definitely get in contact with you if they wanted a zodiac releasing consultation. And also, I mean, the the great thing about zodiac releasing also is that to the extent that the lots can indicate or act as eminence indicators to indicate um, that a person will become eminent at some point in their life, with zodiac releasing, you can actually identify when a person will become eminent at different points in their life or the actual manifestation of the periods of eminence or the manifestation of what I've called like the natal promise of the birth chart, where the different placements and different lots and the rulers indicate that certain circumstances or certain events are promised. Um, like in the last chart, for example, the prominent prominent the the promise of eminence, um, but also potentially in some instances the the potential of of downfall or a reversal at some points as well. And through zodiac re releasing, you can actually see um, the broad spans of time when some of those events will finally manifest and that the promise will actually be delivered or will be completed. Yeah, it's really good at showing you those ebbs and flows on both a micro and a macro level, which is one of the reasons it's so great because it's not just it gets really into those shades of gray because there's multiple levels that you can look at. And through those multiple levels, you're going to see, you know, kind of like with conflicting circumstances and positive circumstances, as we've seen with like when you have a malefic aspecting the lot, that's going to bring some challenges in. But there could be a lot of other significations, like being in an angular house that makes it positive. And, you know, zodiacal releasing also highlights that through the multiple levels that it has there and where certain things might be a challenging day or a challenging chapter. That's a very different feeling if it's 10 years or, you know, four days. <laughs> right. Well, and one of the things is like, like Zodak releasing is also the point at which um, certainly I did and everyone I've ever know, known, once you start applying the technique and seeing how well it works, starts having like a major philosophical crisis of like, because the technique is not just showing the activation of sometimes different periods of like circumstances happening in your life when, that are outside of your control, but because you can also study spirit, um, zodiac releasing can also show the periods where the native, it will tell you when the native takes certain actions or makes certain choices that change the course of their life, or in some instances, 
that lead to the native discovering their life's purpose or their life's work um, is one of the most interesting things, especially with looking at the ruler of the, the lot of spirit and the activation of the ruler of spirit, which I've thought recently actually could have to do again with that concept of diamond, since we're looking at the 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 lot of diamond there and the fact that the diamond, you know, in Plato, for example, is supposed to be the guardian spirit that's accompanying you to help follow through and make sure that you follow through on what your destiny or your fate is supposed to be. I think that's why sometimes the activation of the ruler of spirit can show that because it's showing, um, yeah, the manifestation of your destiny and when the, that will take place. Yeah. It's almost like when your diamond comes knocking and makes it a little bit more clear to you, if you were going on a different path and it's like, no, this is actually what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> That would be a great lecture title, When the Diamond Comes Knocking. <laughs> I'll file it away. Okay. I have a reading all about it, at least, if anybody is interested. I have a, it's called my acorn consultation. And that's really what we look at is we look at purpose and the lot of spirit. It's an entire, yeah, hour just on the lot of spirit and its ruler. So that one's really fun to dig into if you're interested in, in a lot of this diamond stuff. Nice. Great. Yeah, that's something we didn't actually focused on fortune mainly, which is fine here. We didn't get into spirit as much as we could have. Um, I guess I just skipped some of the example charts we could, but I think that's okay and it saves you know, more for, for other things or other times. Um, okay, other applications of lots really quickly. One of them, one of the ones I know you've looked at, I think is like synastry between lots. And I know that's actually one that's mentioned in some of the Hellenistic texts, mm -hmm. even though unfortunately not a lot has survived of um, how ancient astrologers dealt with sinistry, there are a few passages. And I, and I think um, in Dorotheus at one point that he uses lots um, for sinistry. Yeah, I think one of the examples that we didn't get to was um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak both have a lot of Eros in Gemini conjunct. And you can see how they were business partners. They were so crucial to each other's successes. And, you know, those, yeah, that sinistry component is really huge. And it was one of the things that tipped me off to this industry was experiencing it in my own life, where the ruler of my lot of arrows and the ruler of my husband's lot of arrows were actually conjunct the day we got married, which I had no idea at the time. And then I went and looked back, was like, wow, that's pretty remarkable. And so I started looking into it a little bit more. And it's pretty cool to see that. And sometimes, especially in partnerships, like professional partnerships, you'll see those um, those lot connections because especially with a lot of fortune, sometimes you are destined to meet a certain person. I think um, Lee and Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers both have some cool um, <laughs> connections with their lots, especially their lot of Eros and their lot of victory and their lot of fortune. So really showing that that kind of friendship and association and almost like the successes that Jupiter can bring through, you know, favor and like Paula says, um, Eros can be, you know, uh, something related to friendship that all of that kind of comes in and their longstanding friendship has been a huge marker of their band's success. I love that that and the Jobs and Wozniak example. It makes me think uh, it needs to be renamed like the the lot of bromance. Sounds like <laughs> is what I'm hearing here. I think uh, so. Yeah, I think that's a good. We can uh, you can coin that one. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's going down in the history books. A lot of bromance. You heard it here okay. first instead of the lot of arrows. Um, yeah, because they did the ancient astrologers did mention using it for friendship, and and mm -hmm. so you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak is a great example because they were just two young guys that like um, started tinkering with um, 
computers and technology together and started a company in their garage, which became Apple, which is now one of the biggest companies in the world. And that really helped to launch the personal computer, as well as a bunch of other technology like smartphones. And currently, actually, just in the past few days, like a virtual reality device that might mm -hmm. like take off and finally might make that take off. Finally, we'll see uh, under this Saturn-Neptune conjunction. But that's a really great example there of showing a, a connection, either a friendship between two people or in other instances, like a, a romantic connection between two people. Yeah, the power of bromance and romance. <laughs> right. There, again, another great lecture title. Um, you gotta write <laughs> you gotta be down. writing these down. <laughs> okay, somebody write these down and remind us because that's really good. Um, all right, Sinistry, Zodiac releasing, um, two other timing techniques. One of them you mentioned already briefly earlier, which is perfections, that you can do perfections from the lots. I know that you had mentioned um, that in the case of Frida Kahlo, right? Yeah. So in both of the, you know, perfections for people who aren't aware is, you know, you project um, and count one house from either the ascendant or the lot of fortune, and that will activate that house during a given year of life and the themes become more relevant and more pronounced. And so in Frida Kahlo's case, um, I believe in both circumstances where when she got polio and when she had that freak accident, she was in a sixth house year when perfecting from the lot of fortune itself. And so kind of really bringing to life that Mars-Uranus conjunction in the sixth house opposing the lot of fortune and just how much that, you know, affected her material circumstances. Right. So she was in a seventh house perfection year if you perfect from the ascendant in the sense that if you start from her rising sign in Leo, with perfections for those not familiar you just count one sign per year so the first year of her life is leo the second year is virgo the third year is libra so on and so forth until eventually it comes to aquarius so she was in a seventh house perfection year from the basic method of perfections from the ascendant and that's why i'm mentioning this because otherwise the seventh house isn't terribly prominent for her however if you do the perfections from the lot of fortune um her lot of fortune is in cancer and if you count seven signs from Cancer, you come to Capricorn so that we can see that that natal, really difficult opposition between her lot of fortune and that Mars-Uranus conjunction was actually activated in that year through the annual perfections technique. Yeah, exactly. So if you're wondering if it's going to be, you know, a good health year for you or one that's a little bit more challenging, you can perfect from the lot of fortune. And if that is in a house ruled by a benefic planet, you might have, you know, a better year. If it's in a house ruled by a malefic planet or containing a malefic, then you might be running into some more challenges that year. It's just better to kind of keep an eye on those things. Yeah, as well as just seeing the activation or the manifestation of circumstances and sometimes those can be good circumstances of good fortune, and other times it can be bad circumstances of misfortune or difficult fortune. Yeah, exactly. All right. And then one last timing technique, and perfections involving fortune was mentioned in Valens, so that's like a very early technique. Um, one last timing technique then is um, transits, that you can also mm -hmm. use transits um, to the lots as well, right? 
Yeah. So you can kind of track transits to the lots and that will tell you when certain things are going to happen. Like for the lot of fortune, if you're having, you know, a Mars transit to a lot of fortune and a day chart, then that could bring up some misfortune, you know, and especially pertaining to the house that fortune is in, in your natal chart. So if it was in the second house, for example, then you might run into some difficult financial circumstances um, that affect, you know, your ability to you know, support yourself and different things like that. So transits to the lots can be really um, illuminating, especially because sometimes, you know, something will happen. And as astrologers or astrology enthusiasts, we're very quick to usually check the chart <laughs> or check our transits and see how it kind of shows up. And sometimes you're like, I just don't see it here. And then if you bring in the lot of fortune or the lot of spirit or any of the hermetic lots, you know, then we start seeing that really come to life. And so there can be good examples of this. There can be more challenging circumstances of this. I know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, had the sun conjunct her lot of spirit when she uh, won the primary election on June 26, 2018. And the primary was really the key uh, piece in her becoming, you know, the youngest um, congresswoman that we've ever seen in the United States. And so that being, you know, really illuminating spirit and what her soul was striving for and professional pursuits and, you know, all of those things. So the sun was almost, you know, illuminating that and she does have a day chart. So the sun has a little bit more of a oomph in her chart. Amazing. Um, let me see her chart saved somewhere just to visualize that. So here is her chart and You were mentioning which placement again? Uh, the lot of spirit. And she's also got Jupiter exalted in cancer there in the eighth house. So hers is a really interesting example of a lot of spirit. We probably don't have time to get into it entirely, but a big reason that she got involved in politics was as a result of um, her father's death and having to uh, deal with his estate and realizing how corrupt that system was. And she said that that was a primary motivating factor for her realizing the wealth disparities and how that was leveraged against people who were unfamiliar with the system. And that was a big, yeah, almost like compelling impulse, almost you could say like her diamond guiding her to her life's work that followed. That's amazing. And and that's really crucial because then it's like spirits in cancer with Jupiter. And then as you said, it's like something that happened surrounding death and mortality as well as taxes and money issues, which are all eighth house topics, but then that propelled her or caused her to make a choice about where to go um, with her life direction and with her career from that point forward. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> good, good one. And you said it was the sun that was conjunct her spirit when she ran yeah. the primary? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. Got it. All right. Um, I think that's good about transits. So we've covered all those timing techniques and then zodiac releasing. Of course, I have the long lecture on and you have workshops as well. Mm -hmm. um, all right. I think that's good. Are there any other applications of lots I'm forgetting? I think that's all of them basically. That's at this pretty point, much right? all of them. You can use them in solar return charts if that's something you do too, kind of taking into consideration where fortune and especially spirit fall on that chart can tell you a little bit about the things that are going to befall you that year and where you might find purpose or take action for spirits. So that's just one last way that you can use those. They're, they're really endlessly, you know, useful. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, um, I think that brings us to the end of this. So we should have some concluding thoughts. Um, I had a bunch of chart examples I didn't go into here. 
uh, for the sake of letting you go to bed at some point tonight, <laughs> since it's like you're in Europe and you're like eight hours ahead of me and I'm in Denver, um, where it's a little bit earlier. So um, I'm going to have a bunch of example charts. I'm going to do a separate, uh, I think, episode going through some more example charts, which I'm going to release, I think, both for the Casual Astrology Podcast, um, which is available through my page on Patreon for the Astrology Podcast, as well as I'm going to put it in my Hellenistic Astrology course as a bonus for um, students in my section where I teach lots and have a long lecture going into some of this stuff in more detail. Um, so people can find that there. Um, what are your resources again for lots and for teachings? Yeah. So I have the course on Zodiacal Releasing, which is much, much shorter than yours. Probably only like two hours or so. It's not the 18 hour treatment that you give, um, but it does kind of cover the basics. And then I have a lecture on the hermetic lot. So especially if you're interested in learning more about Eros and victory and necessity, courage and nemesis, then I've got a lecture on that and a guidebook. So if you prefer to read or if you prefer to watch video, I kind of have both options available. And then I did a collaboration recently with the astrologer Chloe Margarita on the lot of arrows. And we did, I think, a two and a half hour um, video lecture on that. So we go into a lot of the different significations and the myriad ways that arrows can show up in a chart. So if you were intrigued by the romance and the bromance, then maybe uh, dig into that one. <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right. What's your website again? Uh, just my name. So kirarieberg.com. Cool. I'll put a link to that in the description below this video or on the uh, description page for this episode on theastrologypodcast.com. Uh, my course site is at courses.theastrologyschool.com for the Hellenistic course and some of the other stuff I offer. Um, all right, let's bring this to a close. Do you have any final thoughts, final reflections? It's been a very interesting winding journey where we sort of, again, like found this with a little bit of a lot of preparation um, but also a lot of just like discovering things as we went through the conversation. I'm really happy with like how this came out. I feel like um, this has been a great collaboration and that um, I feel like we've demonstrated and showed and sort of like unlocked the importance and the power as well as some of the rationale and the history of this technique. Um, and even though there's a lot we didn't get into, I think it was a pretty good, pretty comprehensive sort of overview. Yeah, I think it's a great starting point and hopefully a lot of people can just start playing with the lots after this. You know, they're like we've shown so integral to a life and to a chart and they can give you so much information. And so approaching them with curiosity and seeing where they lead you, I think is key instead of just dismissing them because they're not a visible body in the sky is going to get you really far. And hopefully we've given you the tools to be able to do that. For sure. And that this is I think what we've discovered is really this unlocks this element of fate, of fortune, of chance, of luck, as well as ideas of like um, misfortune, um, as well as other ideas of like choice and volition and destiny. Um, all of that, while we know that that's sort of like broadly tied in with astrology in a, in a general sense, and we can see some of that in a chart already through different placements, I feel like we start getting to a much deeper as well as a much deeper level of being able to see that and articulate it, but also in some instances, a much more subtle and nuanced level of interpretation in terms of how astrologers can use this to articulate um, some of the nuances of a person's life and like the twists and turns of their fate 
as well as their their choices. Yeah, it helps you get a lot more specific with those things as hopefully we were able to demonstrate in the examples. And I think if you are a consulting astrologer, you know, when you talk to someone about their lots, they usually light up and it can really show them a part of themselves that they just didn't think showed up in their chart. So I think it's a really useful tool for both personal reflection and for prediction and for um, consults as well. So just all around, I'm obviously a big lot fan, but I can't rave about them enough. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Me too. Um, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to doing some follow-ups on this in the future, doing chart examples. Um, shout out to Vadius Valens, who a lot of my understanding and you know interpretation of lots comes from, um, especially because that was like a requirement of his teachings to like acknowledge your your teacher um, and him being my primary teacher when it comes to this in understanding and unlocking a lot of this and then seeing how his example charts, because he gives, especially in book two, just dozens of example charts of how to interpret lots in the lives of real individuals back then, um, sometimes very eminent or very prominent individuals. I think there's like a chart of an emperor at one point. Um, but when we start applying his techniques of lots to some contemporary examples, as we've seen, we see them similarly indicating um, sometimes people that became very eminent even in our own times, in addition to other subtle twists of fate and and fortune that occurred in the lives of of other individuals as well. So um, yeah, shout out to Valens and what a what a cool time to be alive as an astrologer where we can recover some of these ancient techniques and put them into practice in modern times. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the tradition of Alan, shout out to you because you're my primary teacher. So thanks for everything that you taught me. And, you know, it's a, it's an honor to be able to carry it on a little bit. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to do this collaboration. It feels good. And I'm excited how you're carrying on some of that work and exploring lots of new and interesting dimensions and directions with it. So I appreciate that. I'm glad we got to collaborate on this, what I think is going to become a classic, classic episode. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. And that means a lot. I really do appreciate that. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, and Melissa Delano. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. 
Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine, which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net. 